For exclusive Danger Close merchandise and all things Jack Carr, be sure to head over to jackcarusa.com. Get exclusive gear while it still lasts. That's jackcarusa.com. This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My upcoming novel, Only the Dead, hits shelves on May 16th and is available in ebook, audiobook, and hardcover for pre order right now. My guest today, Garrett Jones. He is the author of Brothers in Arms, as well as a host of other books, screenplays, host of a podcast, fascinating guy, spent time in Iraq and Afghanistan, had a great time talking to him. So now, without further ado, Garrett Jones. Yeah, man, I've been super excited to, to talk to you. Um, when did we get linked up? I was trying to remember. And who so linked was, us up? It was Steve. Steve, uh, Pressfield? Steve Pressfield. Okay, that's yeah, what I was so thinking. I, I think. Can, yeah, sorry, mate. sorry, mate. I got a bit of a delay. <laughs> yes, I thought it was uh, Stephen Pressfield that I could, but I couldn't remember because was it right when my first book came out or second one? It was a, it was a little while ago. I think it, I think your first one was out and the second one was coming out because I think um, when you came on Veteran State of Mind, mm-hmm. I think we did Savage Sun. Okay. Which yeah. one was that? Was that second? Or that was third? the third. So we probably did it in okay. early 2020, or we did it, uh, and we, or we did it in that 2019, right. and we talked about it, or, or something like that. But, um, uh, but man, that was a while ago. I was trying to think. I'm like, geez, it's a little, a few years have passed. Well, mate, the whole COVID thing. I don't know about you, but it seems to be this weird kind of time warp where everything feels like yesterday, but it also feels like it's been decades. Like it really messed up my sense of time. Yeah, you're not the only one. Same thing. It seems like yesterday, but at the same time, it seems like how long have we been in this thing? It's so yeah. wild. It's just crazy. Um, but man, I don't even know where to start with you um, because, gosh, you've been busy and what an experience you had. And this is Brothers in Arms is so well written. Um, Thank you. But uh, I want to read something from it here in a minute. But uh, Path to the Military, what was that path like growing up? Like what led you into the military? Well, so do I got I got some photos here. I'll try and show them on the camera. So nice. these are um, this is my this is my uh, grandfather here. He was a um, RAF bomber crew in the Second World War, bomber command. Me and my great uncle. He was a uh, sappers. He was at Dunkirk. Wow. Then he went back a few days after D Day. Then he went out over to Burma. He's got all kinds of decorations. Just a real guy. Uh, growing up, I kind of looked up to those guys a lot. You know, as a lot of us do. Um, but I also think, and this is something I've talked with Steve a bit, and I, I, I listened to the podcast that you did with him and he brought it up. I really think that there's just something intrinsic in, in us, one as men and, you know, and, and women too, but, to, um, but definitely amongst men that we kind of go out on a seeking adventure, usually dangerous adventure. I mean, there's a reason we get into so many accidents <laughs> and scrapes when we're young men, but I think there's just a certain amount of people that are just born with some kind of gene or some kind of wiring that just makes you want to soldier and yeah. you know it's the it's the call into it's, it's a higher purpose it's brotherhood it's and it's excitement and adventure that you're looking for and uh you know i went through the i want to be a fast jet pilot like everybody does 
but uh, I uh, I was um, originally I was on the path to you know I because I, I started to look at the military when um, this is in the nineties, and um, you know back then there wasn't really much going on, some peacekeeping deployments, that kind of thing, and I thought well I'll go in the, I'll go in uh, be an officer and do a career in the military and maybe I'll get to go on some peacekeeping tours, and then a rack happened while I was at college and all of a sudden my friends started to go out because um, I was a, I was a reservist at the time I joined the reserves when I was seventeen. And um, these get my friends started to deploy, going out on these tours, and they started to get some, you know, punchy tours. Two thousand four, you know, the all kind of Mardi uprising. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I know, I think you're quite familiar with that one yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yep. uh, and and I was like, you know what? I think it would make me a better officer if I went and did a tour as an enlisted um, soldier first. And then this is when I realized that the army's plans and my plans are not exactly aligned. <laughs> so I waited two years to get my call up papers and go. Um, I went out to Iraq. And um, do you want to go as far as that? Or do you want to? Yeah, actually, let me ask about your, uh, those um, relatives. Uh, like they, the one that went to Burma. That's, I mean, that's incredible. Um, what did they pass on to you? Were, you? were they talking about it? Or did you have to pull stories out of them? Or did you, did you read things in, uh, I don't know, history books, like some nonfiction, or then some fiction, and then go to them with questions about it? Or what was your relationship like with those guys? Well, there was rumors. So my granddad, was, uh, he was the most gentle guy you ever met. Uh, oh, the doors just swung open here. Comes yeah, the cat. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he's the most gentle guy you ever met. But he believed strongly in service. And you know, he went into Bomber Command, which is one of the, the most dangerous branch after the U-boat service. Um, and, um, you know, it, it was really hard to reconcile this peaceful guy. And after the military as well, like right after the war ended, he got brain tumor. So he went through so much stuff and I never heard him. Like, I think he got angry once. I saw him get angry once in like the, you know, the, all the years that I knew him. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I got older and as I got more involved, you know, I was really into aircraft. He was, you know, he'd, he'd always be making all these model aircraft and stuff. And I, I've got them all now because, you know, they mean a lot to me. And, you know, we start, it started off with talking about aircraft. And then as I got more involved in the military, you know, we started to talk a bit, a bit more. And, you know, before my grandma passed away recently, she would say to me, she'd like, I was always wondering what you guys would be because we'd go in the other room and, you know, we'd be talking about soldiering and, and that kind of thing and he gave me a great piece of advice um so i believe he got shot down twice Jeez. um and one of the times i I'm, so this is what i've been told and i haven't verified this it's something i really want to do and um from what i believe one of the times they were followed back in by the german night fighters which apparently would a lot of the times they'd wait for guys to, to be flying back over the channel because they knew that was when guys would start switching off uh-huh. you start thinking we've made it we've been over the target we're back home and then that's when they'd come in. So he told me about that. So every time we go on patrol in Iraq, I was at those last, that last mile, those last 300 meters. Mm-hmm. I was always, I always remembered that in the back of my head. Now, my uncle, on the other hand, you know, he went in as a, uh, as a sapper. He went in as, an, uh, as a private. Uh, he was one of the youngest colonels in the British Army during the war. Um, like I say, won a bunch of... He served in the army until I think he's way into his 50s. But that was his place. You walked into his house and it was a regimental museum. Wow. You know, um, and uh, he, would, he was always willing to. So, but it was one of those ones where I never wanted to question him about war. But we talked about the military yeah. a lot. And he was the one who guided me about the path to becoming an officer, being sponsored by a regiment, all of that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So I was really lucky to, you know, to kind of have those examples. And I think lucky in a way, 
they were distant enough examples that it wasn't, you know, I know people who've gone into the army and their dad was a regimental sergeant major mm. or something, you know, and the British army's a small place. Okay. So, you know, there's only so many regimental sergeant majors, especially okay. if you're joining, you know, we recruit here kind of locally. So if you're from, you know, it used to be, if you're from North Wales, you go in the Royal Welsh Fusiliers. If you're from South Wales, you go in the South Wales Borderers. And then if you're, uh, which became Royal Regiment of Wales, which is now the Royal Welsh, which is what I was in. Mm. And then, you know, you've got the Welsh Guards, which recruit from kind of all over the country, but have off officers from England. And there's a bit more of a, they have the old aristocracy kind of thing still yeah. going on in there a little bit. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, so I think I, I got a really good example from them. Um, and um, they never pushed it on me, but they helped every step of the way. Yeah, that's amazing. And then uh, you find yourself in Iraq in, uh, what year do you go to Iraq? November 2006. So at this point, um, down in Basra, there was no more soft hat patrollings, no more having tea with the locals. Mm. It was helmets, body armor, weapon made ready. And, you know, you're going out with warrior armored fighting vehicles. Um, but my, my first deployment there, so I, I thought that I was going out with, there was two warrior battle groups out there. And I thought I was going out to one of those. And instead I found myself on this force protection company, which basically means you do a lot of guard duty. Yeah. Um, and at the time I was so pissed to be going to this, but it, it actually worked out quite well as a learning curve. Mm. But I got really lucky on that because within that force protection company, you have teams cut away to different details. And one of them was working with the bomb disposal teams as their kind of like intimate kind of force protection. And that was such a great learning curve, you know, 23 years old, get into because these guys are so chill i mean you know them you've worked with them you know that they, they i mean that that they're just legends too right you know i mean these are the, these guys are rock stars um so going out on patrols with them because basically we cover route tampa was the team we did so all these convoys coming up from qa going up to the north of the country so you know we go out to a lot of american convoys things like that um and then I, for a bit i got to do the same job with the weapons intelligence section so these are the guys recovering pieces of id actually have I put a few little mementos on the side today because nice. I was looking for my grand, I, I was looking for my great grandfather's typewriter, but we, we're, the house is in a state of flux at the moment. So okay. I couldn't find it, but I will find you my great grandfather's oh, typewriter. Oh man, so what, uh, what, yeah, what year is that? What, what year is no, that typewriter? Did, but he was a he was a ship's captain, um, so he's he's Victorian era, right? Back Jeez. end of the Victorian era, and uh, so it's got to be a really early one, right? Um, and but he wrote a book um, on stowage within the ships, which apparently is still used today. Um, really, I'm not on the royalty side of the family, so <laughs> I can't tell you if that's true or not. But that's 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 the kind of the rumor. That's but amazing. Yeah, and this, uh, so this is one of, one of the benefits of working with bring this home from Iraq. What? So this is a 20 mil rocket which went through my room. No so, way. Yeah. So this is a great, it's full of cobwebs now, but that's, that was a great thing about working with them. So I, I turned up at the airport to go through this. And they're like, no, that's, you're not getting through with that. And, no um, but I had all the, the, the bomb disposal guys had done all the free from explosive certificates and everything from it. So I was able to bring that back and uh, stick it on the mantelpiece. No um, way. Were you on yeah, patrol at the time was, or where did, where, when did that hit? So it's one of those stories where, um, you know, like, you know, you have near misses, right? You have a near miss where you hear the crack, the, you know, the crack and the whip. And then there's near misses where, you know, you're kind of like, if one thing had gone differently. So I was left off patrol one night because we had an extra man. So, you know, we'd, we'd rotate 
and what you'd have, you know, every 13 days or so, you'd have the night off. Yeah. So I was sitting on my bed watching The Simpsons, <laughs> and I had the window on one side of me and the air conditioning unit on the other. So there's only like one place where I could sit. Yeah. And I was sitting there and watching The Simpsons, and the door opens, and it's one of the other platoon sergeants, and he's like, right, get your kit on. You're coming to fill sandbags. I'm like, fuck it not. It's my <laughs> night off. <laughs> and, he's like, and he's like, you are. Get your kit on. Get outside. So obviously, I'm very grumpy. Go down. We go a little bit further down the camp. Fill the sandbags. The sirens go off. Rockets come in. And then this guy that I really didn't like in the company comes up to me and he's like, oh, your room got hit by the rocket. I'm like, whatever. Just thinking he's just winding me up. Anyway, I go back to my room <laughs> and it was trashed. No and just way. where I was sitting was this big hole in the wall, just where my torso had been. Um, and that, that was the piece. Whoa. That piece I just showed you was the piece that went through that piece of wall. Um, I mean, I work out, but I don't think I was going to bounce that off my chest. So, <laughs> you know, it was... Uh, it was one of those ones, it's like, it wasn't a close call because it wasn't close to me, but it was like, if that sergeant had just gone, ah, you know, uh, you, yeah, it's your night off, yep. then, you know, that would have been the end. And that's, that's the, dude, you know yourself, that's the way yeah. it goes on tour. Sometimes yeah. you think you're getting a lucky break or whatever, and, you know. And, but that, that was the main threat on the first tour, really, was for, for me. But, um, you know, we were going out, there was EFPs, that kind of thing. Um, we got lucky, we didn't hit any. My friend, who was in another company with a, different battalion you know his 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 uh patrol hit a daisy chain it took out all three vehicles uh killed a guy took arms and limbs and off other guys so the danger was there but the fighting was going on in the city and i could see this stuff going on and it was like for someone that wanted to be in the fight it was infuriating because i'd be in the in the tower you know my eyes bleeding from boredom. I've got the radio. I can hear what's going on on the radio. I can see the fight. I can see the RPGs going. I can see the tracer going. I can see the vehicles moving. I'm like, God, I need to be in there. So I volunteered to stay on for a, a second tour. Um, and I stayed on with a armored infantry battalion this time. Oh, wow. Now they thought that I'd been with the armored infantry battalion before them. So I, I turned uh, up and they were like, oh, great. We've got an experienced guy here. You can go lead vehicle, <laughs> dismount commander. I didn't even know I was open the door on the vehicle. Oh my god! But I was just like, "Yep, yeah, yeah, no problem. I've, I've got it." No way. But I kind of described my tour in Iraq. Of you know, there was a lot of shooting going on. Like to go into the city, we had Challenger main battle tanks, Warrior armored fighting vehicles. We had U.S. Apaches above us because yeah. this is really interesting. Actually, they could operate on different rules of engagement to us. Huh. Going into the city with main battle tanks, armored fighting vehicles, we had. Um, we had artillery on call, fast air on call. We had the same rules of engagement as a camp guard does in the UK. So basically, it was that kind of the has to be like an, an imminent threat to life, essentially. It's yeah. called Card Alpha. So we'd have it on the radios that there'd be pickups full of pickups full of armed militia coming towards us, and nothing you can do about it until they jump out and start shooting you. Essentially, now in theory, if they're pointing a weapon at you, you could fire, but. They, they then started to slightly change the rules of engagement so that, like, let's say there was someone laying an IED, mm -hmm. you could then engage, that kind of thing. But really, that was only for sniper teams, yeah. uh, drones, that kind of thing. Yeah. Generally speaking, like, I was so scared of going to prison because we'd hear all these stories about British soldiers getting dragged through the courts. You know, what happened to a friend of mine? Um, I didn't meet him until after the fact, but I know firsthand like how bad this kind of situation was. And I was more scared of going to prison than I was scared of dying. Um, you know, but our, our gunners in the warrior turrets, they had a lot of fun on the 30 millimeter cannons, oh, uh, nice. on the chain guns. Oh yeah. But our job in the back was basically run out, kick a box. If it doesn't explode, run back into, oh, <laughs> into the truck. And oh. That was the kind of, that was, that was the tour. There was, 
there wasn't really there wasn't really any sophisticated way of like people were like well how would you find the ieds like well you run over you kick the box oh jeez oh man um it was kind of it was kind of old school yeah um you know things 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 advanced a little bit after that but it was fun though mate it was a really good time like i remember especially if we were lucky enough to be like the lead kind of platoon when we do these uh resupply like so to resupply basra palace which was heavily attacked every day the guys there got absolutely hammered yeah. go and resupply them you know we had this convoy of like i said you know a battalion's worth of warrior armored fighting vehicles which are equivalent to bradley's for yeah. anyone who's familiar with them uh, our challenges are equivalent to abrams and i'd stand up on the i'd stand upon our vehicle and i just look down this long line of armor oh dude chills <laughs> just absolute chills um so there was that it was it was fun it, like i really i really kind of enjoyed that deployment but where it got kind of weird was so we spent the first few months um because I, I like <laughs> this is <laughs> this is another great one about the army as well so i'm in iraq i volunteered for the second deployment and the army and it's all all of his infinite wisdom is like well you need to go back to the uk and do pre-deployment training yeah <laughs> but i'm here so they sent yeah. me to pre-deployment training for uh. afghanistan Okay. So the instructors are like, what the hell are you doing here? I'm like, I'm going back to Iraq. And they're like, when were you there? I was like, like four days ago. You know, they're like, just go sit in your room. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. Like, they're like, you're more current on it than we are. <sighs> um, so I, when I got out though, you know, the battalion had already lost four guys. And you know what that's like? Outsiders, you know, in the infantry, SEALs, whatever, outsiders are already mm. kind of looked down on anyway, right? <laughs> but especially when you've started to take casualties, at that point, you know, you really just like anyone else is, is not your tribe. Yeah, that was quite difficult at first to kind of uh, break into them. But we did. And we did some strike operations and stuff. Um, usually on, and I'll be on the cordon in like the inner uh -huh. cordon. Um, and we used our reconnaissance platoon to do the door kicking, usually with a couple of SAS guys to do the entry. OK, um, that was a lot of fun, you know, and um, we we did that for a few months, and then the British government and the British military made a deal with the Jaishamadi and the Badr Brigade mm -hmm. to essentially you stop attacking us and we'll leave the city. Now, from what I've read, and there's a great book. Um, I'll get get hold of a copy for you. I think you really enjoy it. Called uh, "Losing Small Wars" by a guy called Frank Ledwidge. Oh, I've not read uh, that. Oh, mate, he's 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 brilliant. Um, been on a veteran state of mind a couple of times, but he's a really fascinating guy. I think you, I think you dig him. Yeah, what's, what's and, his name um, again? Uh, Frank Ledwidge. But I'll make a note. I'll make a note. I'll, I'll send you a copy, mate. Oh, it's man, one of the books. You. Like it's one of the books that I like giving out. Oh, thank you. I appreciate uh, that. I have a few. I have a few books to send you, mate. When we when we finish. Nice. Definitely. So nice. I need to get your new postal address. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, so, so they made this deal, and they didn't tell the Iraqi government or the Americans what we were doing. Oh, jeez. And we just left. Oh. And then in the news, it was like, you know, when Kabul fell, everyone was clear what was happening, right, in, in one sense. But in Basra, it was all portrayed as it was all flags flying. It was, oh, we've handed over to the Iraqis. Oh, and it's wow. like, well, we kind of have handed over without telling them. <laughs> Interesting. Um, and then the U.S. and like one of the like the kind of Iraqi shock divisions had to come down in uh, the year later, in 2008, on Operation Charge of the Knights oh. and retake the city from the militias. And. You know, for me, it's just kind of unforgivable. One, because as troops, we didn't want to go. We wanted to be let off the leash. We knew right. where the enemy were. They were in the Shia flats, um, mostly. We're like, send, like we're an armored battalion. Send us in. Let's go house to house and clear these fuckers out. Yeah. And they wouldn't, ha they wouldn't have it. So it was incredibly frustrating. Um, but then to make matters worse, 
as part of this deal, they started releasing all the people who'd been picked up in these strike operations over the past year or so. Yeah. And they had us open the gates from. So we had to watch these guys walk past in front of us that our brothers and sisters had died apprehending. And then they'd go across this bridge on the other side of this big wide canal. And then they'd start doing quote unquote celebratory fire, which which, which, which seemed a lot like direct fire to me. <laughs> um, um. And we weren't allowed to fire back. And then wouldn't you know it, as soon as the last prisoner was, was released, they, they unleashed the biggest rocket barrage on the base that had happened uh, in years. So who would have known Jeez. that the Jaysh al-Mahdi wouldn't keep their word, eh? Couldn't see yeah. that one coming. Yep, had a similar thing in uh, Najaf in 2004. Uh, after two weeks, really 11 days, of like pitched street battles, which was akin to what I thought it would be like by watching World War II movies, because it was day and night, nonstop for the whole 11 days. Um, but eventually we pushed them back to the Imam Ali Mosque in Old Town Najaf, which is a, um, a obviously a very important holy site uh, in Islam. And uh, that's when there was a deal struck with the Jaysh al-Mahdi and uh, Muqtada al-Sadr and those same people that we've been fighting for the past 11 days got to late, or turn in their weapons to the uh, some Iraqi unit and, uh, and off, then just walk on out to fight again another day, essentially. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm familiar. Stick, yeah. Those things stick in your throat, bro. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, because it's like, it's not for a, it's not like we were burnt out or not wanting to do it. And I think that was like, I can understand the deal being struck when you're on the ropes and mm. you're trying to save the last of your men or whatever. But, you know, the way I see it, it was like, well, these guys did die for nothing in a sense of like, it, like so there's two ways I look at this. One is they die doing what they love doing, mm -hmm. which is important. Um, but on the other hand, if we're talking actual strategy, well, what was the strategic uh, kind of end state from this is, they took someone for a few months, we handed them over and, we, and then we left. And, that, you know, that is uh, as a real bitter pill to swallow. And I, I don't think it's one that I will ever swallow, to be quite honest with you, mate. Yeah, no, I, I get it. I think about the same things. And uh, a lot of times I frame it as, uh, you know, what lessons did we learn from it? And what can we take and apply going forward as wisdom? And I know that is hopeful because especially our uh, senior level military leaders and elected uh, representatives, uh, politicians, uh, aren't very good at that. They're not very good at learning, uh, the, pulling the right lessons from the past and then applying them going forward in, um, in a way that honors the sacrifice of those who allowed us to learn those lessons. So I, I do think about that uh, quite a bit as well. But, you know, I miss when you held up that piece of, uh, of shrapnel. Where did that, that one come from? Oh, this? Yeah. So this, this, this was out of my, uh, what we call a Bergen, which I think you guys call a Rook. Yep. Exactly. This came out of my rock. This destroyed my spare socks. No my way. Underpants. Yeah, it melted what? all my underpants together. Where, where did you get hit with that? Um, two days into being on the ground in Afghanistan. No um, way. And then this, here I have my very high-tech IED finding kit, oh which is a paintbrush gosh. and a pokey stick. Oh, wow. So, that yeah. is crazy. What, what, what happened with that... Uh, when they hit your rock or your burger. Yeah, well, yeah. So I just say it's, it's kind of just funny that for all the advances in the military, when it comes down to IEDs, it still basically comes down to sticking your nose in the dirt and, and looking for them, which I, I kind of find phenomenal. You've got all this incredible avionics and stuff flying above you and these, oh, these, these billion dollar airframes and then guy on the ground being a grunt, digging in the dirt. You know, some things will never change yep, no matter exactly. how much some people want them to. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but yeah, mate, we went out to, um, so I demobilized after Iraq. I went to work in the gym for a little while and um, I wasn't enjoying it. I missed the guys. Yeah. And I was watching the news one day in the gym and there was this warrior drove through a compound wall in Afghanistan. I was like, oh, I need me some of that. Uh-huh. So um, again, stuck my paperwork in, took over a year to get through. By the time that I got to the battalion, the company that I was supposed to go away with had almost finished their tour. So it worked out really well, though, because I ended up going back out with the same company I'd been with in Iraq. And um, this was middle of 2009, which was really the kind of height of things for British troops. I I would say the height for Americans in Afghanistan probably came uh, a bit later when they took over from us. Um, So probably around that 2010 period, because obviously they took over a lot of the areas that we were in, Um, which is a trip, actually, because I I mean, I met some... uh, I met some Marines once in, uh, it was through Nate, our, our mutual friend, Nate Boyer. Nice. It was for, through his charity, MVP. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, I met these guys and it's crazy. You're like, you, you've slept and gone to the toilet and <laughs> patrolled from the same bases and stuff. And you just meet these Marines on the other side of the world. It's, that's always a trip. But, um, wow. yeah, we went out there and, you know, the day I flew out, I had to go to a funeral for a friend of mine that had been killed with the Welsh Guards in the morning. So, you know, I was under no illusion about what we were going out to there. Yeah. And the When I went to Iraq the first time, I didn't even have personal accident insurance. I was, you know, like every young soldier is, I'm immortal. It's going to happen to the other guy, right? Mm-hmm. By the time Afghanistan had come around, I knew by that point, I was like, you know, this could happen to anyone at any time. Um, so you have, I was to, lucky you have to buy your own con- insurance? Oh, yeah, bro. This is a British army. <laughs> like, wow. Um, Are there so other things... choices or is it just like a box you check and like your no, version you, of... so you get, they, they come in, uh, it's a civilian company, which obviously works hand in glove with the military. They come in and give you a presentation. Hmm. And when they first did it, I'm like, no, nah. I was like, oh, I'm keeping that extra 60 pounds a month. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then as soon as my friend Chris lost his leg, I was like, right, give me all the policies you can give me. Okay. Um, wow. So it was... Uh, yeah, when we went to, to Afghanistan, you know, companies at the time there, you know, it was a lot of a lot of amputations, you know, traumatic amputations and stuff were happening. A lot of deaths. It was a Operation Panthers Claw were going on, which we thought we'd be put on to. But, um, you know, so we were at Camp Bastion. Where, so, so any Marines listening will be familiar with Levenek, which essentially it was the same camp, different parts of the camp. And the medical emergency response team helicopter, the Pedros, massive respect to Pedros. Those guys were just flying in constantly to the, you know, and and then you get the report, you know, every night you get in, you have your brief, you get the casualty reports and stuff, and you're like, fucking hell, this, this is this is serious. Wow. Uh, you know, they had GMLRS on the base, so they'd be firing. You know, you got the Apaches in and out. So, you know, you're like, you know, it's, it's, it's kicking off out there. Yeah. And then we did a, that couple of weeks that we were there before going on the ground, we did a lot of ramp ceremonies, like a lot. Um. Probably too many, to be honest. I think because like we had a lot of eighteen-year-old guys who were on their first tour. I mean, I can't even imagine what that'd be going like. Your first deployment and in your first two weeks, you've been to God knows how many ram ceremonies. Um, you know, um, but then, and then we deployed, and it was the old thing of oh, we'll be. We had to drive out in the in the convoy. We're the only warrior. We're the only warrior company in in Afghanistan. Right. Um, they were great for Iraq because, you know, one of my friends hit 20, 20 one of my friends got hit by 20 EFPs in Whoa. a very short period. Yeah, he was lead vehicle. Yeah, 
period, nobody got killed. So those things were great in Iraq. Uh, and they, uh, um, the armor's on the sides. Like, you know, the armor's strong on the sides, strong on the front. Yeah. Your ground clearance in a warrior is next to nothing. And unlike the AFPs, which come in from the side, the IEDs in Afghanistan were, they were usually HMEs, and it was buried, a homemade explosive, and they were buried in the ground. And yes. so they usually detonate with a track if they're, if they're going for vehicles, right? Okay. So just the blast wave were like, if you had your foot, if you had your feet on the floor, you know, it was shattering guys' ankles and things. So we, we'd have our feet on opposite benches to try and get that out. But just the force of being lifted up and thrown into the top of the vehicle would, you know, cause a lot of grievous injuries. Wow. And unfortunately, we lost a few guys that way. Um, there, you know, there was, there, I know there's another warrior later on. And this is something, again, I find unforgivable. They were not fit for purpose in Afghanistan. But they would continue to be lost. And there was one warrior that was hit, I think, maybe a year after we were there. And it, everyone's side was killed. I think they had to cook off in there. Um, all the ammunition went up because you've got a lot of HE in there. Um, you know, and so I, I, I do find things like that unforgivable. I, I, I totally understand trying something out. There was a time when warriors were a great idea for Afghanistan, when it was just, you know, mines out there. It was a great idea. But once they switched to these big homemade explosives, because you can dig a hole in that ground in no time um and you know they limited us to using the same tracks the command didn't want us to piss off the locals by driving through the crops so we had to use the same tracks all the time and there was very little ground that we could actually watch from a patrol base which meant that really realistically anything more than 100 meters away once you start going between the compounds could be full of ieds Jeez. and they were you know like we we found a lot more than we hit um we had some guys this uh, guy in Flatter. Uh, I mean, I, I would be surprised if he didn't find 200 IEDs on that tour. That guy was like, he he was like, um, wow, just just yeah, like he just turning up ID after ID, just balls of steel. But um, yeah, so we were on this move, supposed to take us 18 hours, or whatever. Um, warriors, as they tend to do, have breakdowns, so we started <laughs> getting delayed by that. Yeah. Once that ha started to happen, the Taliban started to get in front of us, and so every time there was a wadi crossing, there was IEDs in it. So we had to wait for those to be found and cleared. Um, and then there was a, a pop and drop IED that um, one of the warriors hit. So that delayed us some more. Then there was a massive IED that uh, Kay killed one of the warriors. Um, luckily, everyone inside was okay. And we stayed for the night at uh, Fob Edinburgh, which I know a lot of the Marines are probably familiar with. Uh, I think Pedro worked out of there on the later tours. Um, I see it come up on Instagram and stuff a lot. We had uh, the artillery held it. They had 105 millimeter guns there. For our fire support and uh, in the morning we went we had some american units clearing the way with um some kind of like an engineer unit which you know these vehicles are supposed to be able to find ieds i don't blame the troops for this whatsoever but my vehicle was quite far back down the convoy and maybe it was a maybe the pressure plate took a few times going over but whatever it was next thing i knew smoke dust and um unfortunately in that incident um we had a couple of casualties including uh, the driver who uh, passed away uh, in, in hospital afterwards. Um, and that was a couple of days into being on the ground. So it was, uh, and like, so we got there and I was like, well, fuck, this is it. This is going to be it for the next six months. This is going to be a daily thing. And it, um, it actually, we got, we got, I, I went there. I had a number in my head about, you know, just kind of looking at what was happening on the news and being realistic. And thankfully we never hit that number, but you know, a few of my friends, got badly hit a few not i think it was just a few probably maybe like five or six days 
after that, well, actually, I'll, I'll rewind a little bit. So we, we went from there, then we went into this little checkpoint. And this was the soldier you love, you know, bro. It was the no command. Yeah. You got your platoon <laughs> sergeant. Go. So platoon <laughs> sergeant. Our platoon commander was a, he was a, he was a sweat, you know, he was a salt. And he was a great guy. So we started to grow the beards and it nice. was t shirts and flip flops. There you go. And we started to get at, we, we started to get some engagements, you know, from so on the other side of this big wadi was a, an ANA base with a small team of Brits. Okay. And that place would get hammered all the time. So every night it would just be kicking off. Wow. You just kind of like just have that lovely tracer show. And a few times we'd we'd be in the Sangha and you start taking shots and it was it was kind of fun. Uh but unfortunately, so I was a, G, a GPMG gunner out there, which is equivalent to like a two forty Bravo. Okay. Um that was on the deck of the warrior when we got blown up. And I said to I said to them when we when we got to the patrol base, I'm like, I need to test fire this weapon because this is just taking a big fucking hit. I want to test fire it. But the um I'm not gonna name names, but I wasn't given permission to test fire it. And there was a huge gravel wadi that I could have test fired this thing into. Yeah. Anyway, a couple of days later, maybe not even that, I've got Taliban running between compounds in front of me, and I'm like, this is a machine gunner's dream. They were running right through the beaten zone. Uh-huh. And I'm like, I've waited my whole life for this. Clip. Clip. And um, it turned out that it had some, uh, there was like a mechanical malfunction on the inside, which at a gunner level was just past my, it was like an armor level kind of thing yeah. that you wouldn't, you know, that you're not trained on. Yeah. And God, dude, that was so, it was so frustrating because it had been foreseen. Yeah. You know, That's but crazy. it was just a rule. But um, what was that inexperience or was that, uh, why would they not? I think, I think um, it was a real weird time in Afghanistan where, yeah. you know, when the Brits first went into Helmand, it was J-Dams, Apaches, you know, get some yeah. kind of thing. Right. And even though the combat was actually, uh, I'm not going to say more intense, but the casualties were higher and the combat was high, they were starting to go through this weird flux, what they were calling kind of courageous restraint. Mm. So that involved kind of like, um, you can't love drop those a, terms. Can't, love that. That's a great term. Courageous, courageous restraint. restraint. Yeah, I mean, it, Definitely some, uh, some colonel or general uh, came up <laughs> yeah. with that one. Know. But it's like, you know, you can't drop a J-Dam on a compound unless you know there's not civilians in the compound. Well, how do you know there's never civilians in the compound? You're never yeah. going to know that, right? And look, there's a part of me that thinks, like, that's not a bad thing because, the like, we're there to help those people. Yeah. And we don't help them by blowing up their homes unnecessarily. So it's not, like, a, the worst thing in the world. But the Taliban, you have, they, they, they clock onto what was going on. So, for instance, they'd engage us. You'd see them all along the wall of this compound. Yeah. A-10s would turn up. And they'd see the people in the compound, but they'd stop shooting. A-10s would leave, they start shooting again. Yeah. You know, so they were... It's they a game of constant like, adaptation. You know, exactly. Mate. But yeah, so so um, a couple of days after we got there, we were sent down to... And again, this kind of makes me laugh because people are always like, you know, um, they, they'd say, well, there's no front line in insurgency, which is kind of true, but there, there is also front lines, as you know yourself. Mm. <laughs> there are front lines. You know, you go to... You go past this road, uh, this route onto another part of the city. Yeah. That's a front line, and we had a very clearly defined front line along a, a, a wadi, which was all like almost all the way down to Sangin was Taliban. Mm-hmm. So we went on patrol um, down towards there, and um, kind of crossing this field. And the next thing is just everywhere. Yeah, it all goes nuts, bro. And um, that was to me was de- definitely the the best point of my military career because I was like it's time to go full Vietnam movie with yeah. this, with with the pig yeah, and nice. just light up some tree lines and that was <laughs> a lot of fun. But one of my friends as he got up he was moving for cover, 
got shot through the neck and um, jumped up, started running again, <laughs> blood like kind of spurting everywhere. And uh, again, just one of those ones where if he'd been a million, like this, so this uh, round went, like, I'm not saying he's fat, but, you know, it went through the bit of fat <laughs> between his spine and his uh, his arteries. You know, millimeters one way, he'd be paralyzed, yeah. millimeters the other way, he'd be dead. Yeah. And those this was all crazy. like in the first week. And yeah. I'm like, Jesus Christ, this tour is insane. Like, we can't keep this up for six months. And it did kind of ease off because this was summer. You know, it's like fighting season. Yeah. Um, but it was just, um, it was, I don't want to say like cat and mouse because I never felt like we were the cat. I feel like it was more like, you know, I, I, I felt like if, if anything, we were the mice. Yeah. Um, because we, we never, like, well, actually, I say we never. You would have enjoyed this one, mate, as a sniper. You would have enjoyed this. Uh, we went out. We walked through a cornfield. We dropped off a sniper and a gun team. Yeah. And I was like, this is never going to work. They're going to count us in. They're going to count us out. Um, and it was overwatching a, um, this this wadi entrance, which was always just full of IEDs. Yeah. And they, and, uh, they came out, middle of the day, started planting IEDs. And um, our guys bagged them. And I was like, well, this is great. Let's do more of this. It was the only time we did it on the tour. Really? I could not under, I could not understand it. And like, you know, in Recce Platoon, you're trained to work in three-man teams, you know? And I could never understand. I'm like, look, no, we're trained to work in three-man teams and advance towards, you know, the, like the, basically it's all based on Soviet tactics, right? So it's like, we're trusted to be three-man teams and go against a Soviet armored brigade. Mm-hmm. But we're not being trusted because we were like, well, look, look, just send three of us out at night. We'll, we'll go out on our own. Yeah. We'll set up. We'll, we know where all these all these vulnerable points, they clearly come in. Because what would happen is we go in the day, we clear it. They come back at night and relay the IDs. Right. So we're like, so let's put teams in. And they wouldn't let us do it. That's and crazy. Now I, now I know why. And it's because um, the British mission very much became about limiting casualties. Yeah. Um, and they, they, it was the press, you know, they did not want the press of more casualties, which, you know, as anyone that's been on these deployments will know, you limit casualties by being offensive. Mm-hmm. You know, you take casualties by giving the, and uh, by, by giving, handing over, you know, control of the battlefield to the enemy. So I think a lot of people thought that they were helping out by restricting like this, but all it made you do is like, we, we were, you know, we were victims in a way because every device we hit was victim operated mm. pressure plates. You know, they put trip wires out, that kind of thing. Jeez. So it's like, let us go out and let us dominate the battlefield. Yeah. You know, we, we quite like, we were quite happy to be like, look, we're, we're quite happy to go out in a three man team or, or, or a section level, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and every time we went out and we did an op, it would be a big scrap and it was a lot of fun, you know? Um, think the coolest thing i'll probably ever see in my life was an a10 strafing run i don't think i'm ever going to top that oh yeah it's in here you talk yeah. about it in here yeah or at least I one, mean, of, one of the times well, anyway yeah i mean and, and that to me was like i mean i've always been a fan of america but there was nothing more america or america to me than seeing nice. an a10 come in and just smoke some dudes and that thing's serious we like, they, they talk about it as a uh uh, a gun that has a plane attached to it <laughs> essentially you know a cannon with a, with a plane attached to it yeah. it that those but, things are legit Oh, mate, they're so cool. Like, yeah. I think that might be, 
the coolest job on the planet. It's a, a good 10, one. A, a 10 driver. Yep. Yeah. I had a, a pilot in Afghanistan flew a, uh, a flag for me in his, yeah, on a mission, on mission, gave it to me afterward. Uh, was, that was pretty oh, cool. Really? I still have it. Um, but yeah, those things are amazing. I don't know. And then they always try to get rid of them. I forget what the status is of that now, but somewhere right after they, they were always obviously effective, but when they started proving just how effective they were on the, you know, in combat, uh, of course the military is like, we need to get rid of those. They're, they're too old. They're not modern <laughs> enough. And you're like, that's what you want to see coming over. You know, that's what you want to see, oh, yeah. uh, when you, when you're calling in some cast, when you're calling in some air, um, man, that is, that is wild. Recently on Change Agents with Andy Stumpf, an Ironclad original from executive producer Jack Carr. Andy sat down with author Siddharth Kara to discuss the horrors of modern cobalt mining. These people suffer enormous violence. So there are hundreds of thousands of some of the poorest people in the world, including tens of thousands of children, digging cobalt out of the ground. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to Change Agents with Andy Stump wherever you get your podcasts and get the full cinematic experience on YouTube at This Is Ironclad. All right, today I want to talk about Protect.com. That is P-R-O-T-E-K-T.com. Started by my buddy Nick Norris from the SEAL teams who was recently on the podcast. He's all about health and wellness and living that best life. So what we have here, hydration, immunity, energy, rest, liquid packs. Because we all want to feel our best. We dream of waking up with plenty of energy to excel at our work, our personal lives, and have a great workout every single day. But the reality is very few of us do that. That's why Protect was started. And you can grab a convenient pack right here. This is energy. So this has been boosting me through my latest novel. And look at that, it's a liquid pack right there. You just, bam, add it to a glass, add a little water, and you are good to go. So hydration, love the hydration, and the immunity and the clarity, which I'm gonna take as soon as this podcast is over and I get back to writing. So all of that plus the rest. How important is that rest right here? Take that an hour and a half before bed for some great sleep. And for hydration right here, 30 minutes after you wake up and right before your workout. So swap that daily energy drink for the energy. Try that hydration, that immunity, that rest. And they also have products like this, Reef Safe Sunscreen, SPF 50. Protect right there. And right now you can get 25% off. Go to protect.com. That is P-R-O-T-E-K-T.com slash danger close for 25% off. Go check them out. But what happened with the uh with, with the uh IED that got hit your oh, God, Sorry, dude. I was yeah, so basically my, my uh, kit was hanging over. We didn't have enough room in the back for our kit. You know, so inside we got the ammunition, yeah. that kind of thing. And then we'd, we'd like um, carabiner our um, kit onto the outside. Okay. Um, you know, so if we were doing long moves and stuff. So my got back to mine and it was absolutely shredded. Um, and um, I, I, yeah, I pulled out my sp- – so like, you know, you know what it's like when you're in these kind of places. You go maybe – you go quite a long time before changing your underpants <laughs> when, you're, when you're living in like a compound or something. I thought it's time for some new underpants. I pulled them out, and the heat of it had just melted everything together into this big – No kidding. This big kind of ball. 
But my mum thought she was doing me a favour because she saw him in my bedroom and was like, oh, I'll put these in the in the wash for him. And, like, oh. so, and then she's like, what's this big fucking lump of metal in them? Um, no way. So, um, yeah, what yeah, was the I hit? Mean, Do you remember, like, the hit? Did you guys stop and have contact or was it just an IED? So um, we, we got told in this valley, we got told, like, look, this is a – because some, ta- some valleys are more Taliban than others. And we got told in this valley, usually when – because it, it was one of the most IED'd tracks in all of Afghanistan. Yeah. And we got told, if you get hit here, you will get smashed, RPGs, small arms, mortars. So when we got hit, um, you know, I had to pop, you know, because in the back, there is a small tunnel that you can get to technically to the driver, but it's, it's fucking useless. So I went out the top. I was on the top of the vehicle and I was expecting it to get smashed. But um, it never happened. There were some mortars, but um, I think that they saw this like long drawn out column of fighting vehicles with 30 millimeter cannons yeah. and probably thought like, you know what, we'll, we'll leave the small arms today. Jeez. Um, so that, that was it. But I mean, the biggest like threat when you're dealing with that is you then have to, in order to do the extraction, you've then got to clear the entire area through IEDs because, you know, like everything from the helicopter landing site to around the vehicle, everything has to be cleared because usually these IEDs aren't singular. They're usually belts. Um, there's, you know, they're usually looking, they, they know our tactics, they know first thing that's going to happen is, and like we've been told, like, look, if someone gets hit, you know, don't run to the vehicle, take your time, you know, use the metal detectors, you know, w- work your way across slowly. Our medics were like, no, straight off their vehicle, ran straight to ours, you know. Um, Emma was one of them, and there was, a, we call him Jesus, who was one of the signalers, you know, like before I knew it, I was dealing with a casualty and they were just next to me. You know, so those guys are just like, yeah, whatever. Fuck it. If I get blown up, I get it blown up. They they were gone. Um, you know, just yeah, the, that was something to see. Um, and uh, yeah, it was weird. When, and then it was one of those ones where, so that I had that rock with me for the rest of the deployment. And like I said, it was just chewed apart. And then um, when I went back to the battalion, you know, I went back, finished the deployment. You know, I went in and I was like. I need a new rook. And they were like, well, can't accept this one. It's too, too dirty. Go away and <laughs> clean it. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Like, this is oh. not going to be used. But, um, oh yeah, like, I still have the, the cover off the back of it, which okay. is with all the, all the holes and stuff through Jeez. it. But um, it was the luckiest game. And I feel like, obviously, you know, I think about um, Hunty, the driver. I think about him a lot. Um, you know, like, you've, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, it's just something you don't forget every now and again, those memories. I was just driving down to London the other day and it just kind of pops up into your head and yeah. you kind of forget that you've been through these things sometimes and they just kind of hit you. And, you know, it's there's this mixture of it's sad, obviously, but there's also like a bizarre element to it. Like when you're back in the UK thinking about these things, you're like, it seems surreal to think that you were on the other side of the world in this life and death situation. And like it just it's just weird you know yeah. like you know when you think about some of the stuff that you've done do you ever have that you just like because Vinny, like when you had vincent on recently you know Vin, Vinny's a, a, a bro and um i loved what he was saying about it like he'd finish an operation and he'd be like that was just wild like yeah. what <laughs> like crazy and that's kind of how i feel about it. i'm just like this is just this is just nuts i mean but, especially um, that when you do it for 20 years as a country and then it's like not even talked about Anymore. Well, this is so I've got to get you a copy of this one, bro, because this is the recent one. Oh, wow. So I'm oh. Gonna, this is one of the ones I got to post to you. Oh, very cool. I didn't know that one. I, for some reason, I missed that. 
It's only came out. It's only just come out. Okay, awesome. Like literally last, literally last week. So I'm gonna get that to you. But yeah. That what's was it the, called again? For those that are listening, what's uh, it called? Escape from Kabul. Escape from uh, written with my friend Levison Wood, who is a former paratrooper. Nice. Um, but it's all uh, interviews with everyone who was out there. Okay. That was kind of one of the reasons we wrote it was to try and kind of, like you said, it's this 20 year thing, which is most of our friends have been involved with. We've been, you know, like, and it's it's just, it was like, we'll try and make some sense of the ending of, of, of this kind of thing. But um, actually, I got, I, like I said, I put a few little things yeah. on here. I thought, you, I thought you'd enjoy yeah, yeah. it. So this one here, this is, uh, Levison gave me this. This is a coin from Afghanistan. Oh, wow. And it's a, um, it's a Greek coin. Ancient Greek coins. So I believe this has probably belonged to one of our Alexander's troops. Wow. Out in out in Greece. So uh, no yeah, way. I thought you I thought you'd like that, mate. That's amazing. That, and where, and so where did you guys find that? So Levison gave me that. He so Levison, right? He went backpacking across Afghanistan on his own uh, eighteen what? years ago. Yeah, before he joined the Paris. So what? Um, yeah, he went out there. And he said, like you know, um, because there was a, there was a kind of period. You know where, and like you know, the Afghan people are incredibly hospitable, incredibly generous. It's one of those countries where, you know, they have this code of honor about taking people into their homes, and you know they they'll give you their last bit of you know their their last meal, and and um, yeah, he walked across the country. I mean, he's a fascinating guy, mate. This this Leveson, he's done all kinds of crazy things, like walking the length of the Nile and. What? All kinds of stuff. So yeah, he gave me that when we when we finished the book together. Nice. Um, so yeah, I mean, like one of my favorite books is Steve uh, Steve's uh, Steve Pressfield's The Afghan Campaign. Oh yeah, I mean, I love that book. One of my favorites, bro. Yeah. Uh, it's on my but, it's on my it's on my reading list for anybody interested. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I love reading that. When did I read that? I forget exactly when I read that, but I I had a pen in hand and was circling mm -hmm. some things, and because uh, he does such incredible research and just brings you into those time periods and. Um, yeah, I made some notes on that one, but yeah, amazing, amazing book. You know, in the seventies, sixties, people would go to Afghanistan and they, like from America, they're over there in Europe and they're backpacking around and they have the Eurail pass. And then they're like, you know what, let's push a little farther East here and, uh, go to the exotic lands and off they'd go to Afghanistan, like late sixties, early seventies. And it was a destination, uh, you know, back then for, you know, backpackers, um, that are, right. uh, that are exploring, uh, during college or after college or whatever. Um, and then obviously we get to late seventies and then not so much anymore. Um, but man, that's wild. That's a really cool, really cool coin. And I see you have, speaking of Stephen Pressfield, I see you have the, the mug and I'm forgetting the uh, name yeah, of the Cotter, mug right shout, now. Um, yeah, Cotter, that's it. Po uh, po pottery. Co co what is it? Co co something, pottery. something like that. Yeah. I'm forgetting Joe, the exact Joe, name. I think it's Joe Cottery. Yeah. I apologize if I'm butchering your name, mate, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, this is great. Yeah. Uh, I have mine up, uh, on my bookshelf in the other, oh, yeah. in the other room <laughs> here, but, uh, it's supposed to catch like the mud, right? Like, like dirty water. That's why it has that weird, uh, not weird, has that di different uh, bottom to it because it's supposed to like catch the mud uh, out of a dirty water as you were drinking it back in the day. So he had those have, for- Have uh, you put yours to the test yet? Because I gotta be <laughs> honest, like <laughs> I haven't drank out of any muddy, muddy, muddy puddles. I'm trying to day. avoid it's, it these days. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with it on the-, on the <laughs> Exactly, I'm trying to avoid it these days. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that was the that was the idea. I'm afraid to like use it because I'm afraid, afraid I'm gonna wash it or someone's just gonna throw it in the dishwasher, you know, see it there. Oh, and I'm gonna okay. turn around and be like, where is it? And all of a sudden it's going to be in pieces, but it's a, it's a beautiful piece. Uh, and they, Stephen did that for uh, uh, man at arms 
yeah, for, another for great when book. that book came out. Yeah, awesome, awesome. He's a tough act to follow. He is. He is. I love that guy. Love that oh, guy. His, yeah, and his latest one, uh, Government Cheese, is fascinating as well. It's uh, his memoir that that recently came out at the the first part of the year, um, and uh, it's in, so inspirational for people that are expecting overnight success as we're being more programmed to via social media channels and, and everything else. That's where people's minds go and they think they're a failure if they, uh, you know, on day two, they're not the success that uh, they want to be. And uh, he, he takes you on that journey, his, his path from, from, you know, a cab driver and a truck driver and picking fruit. And I mean, it's, it's amazing uh, his journey. So that's a, that's a good one as well. But um, how long was your tour in Afghanistan? Uh, I think about six, half months. Okay. Something like that. Yeah, I actually have an issue with that at all. And so I use like the kind of six month tour is like a it's like a legacy from the Northern Ireland days. Okay, you know where we rotate rotate battalions through there, and you know I, I don't think it's long enough because the problem is as well you do six months and then you, they take guys out for R and R rotation. You got guys going away on R and R, guys coming back, and then you know so the first kind of months of the tour you don't have guys on R and R, which means you can be a lot more offensive. Um, yeah. because you know you've got to hold a patrol base so that's a platoon and then so you've got a couple of platoons to work with but then if you've only got if you've got 20 guys away on in the R&R cycle out of 130 guys you know that really impacts your ability to launch operations so either end of the tour you can do operations really you know but then really in the middle of the tour all we were kind of doing was ground holding and and I just think like look we've signed up for this so don't give me my two weeks like we're here to do a fucking job let's do the job um and i'm sure there's people that complain about that and i just think all right cool you can go away and the rest of us will stay in and do the job yeah. um and I, and I think as well the whole the way that we do it and you come in with a new brigade and the brigade places the other brigade i don't like that either because it basically means that all that kind of knowledge of the you know on the ground has to be learned back again and then you go away yeah and even when you come back because mate you've seen it in iraq stuff like the your Iraq deployment at one year is not the same as your Iraq deployment in another year. Right. So, you know, you can say, oh, well, I'm on my third tour of Iraq, but it's like, well, what Iraq are you getting this right. time? Yeah, you might yeah. have been, you might have been really clued up on one type of Iraq, but you come back in and it's, just, it's very different. You know, yeah. some things obviously transfer, but a lot of it, there's a lot of skill fade there. And, and like not even skill fade a lot of the times you're having to learn things from scratch again. So, mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, so for instance, Somebody coming to Iraq in two thousand and seven that had been there in two thousand and five is going to find a very different, very different Iraq in Basra. Yeah, exactly. and then in Afghanistan, like if you're there two thousand and six and you get into contact and you can just call in the A tens, well, you're in a very different position in two thousand nine. Mm -hmm. And if you go there in two thousand twelve, you're in a very different position again. So I'm, I'm, I, I think that we should have been there longer. I've never understood as well, like these were our wars, right? We're at war in Iraq, we're at war in Afghanistan. Some people say they weren't wars. I'd say that they've never been on, on the sticky end if they don't think yeah. they were wars. Um, but I just think like the idea that, you know, when, when the Second World War happened, the idea that we'd keep the bulk of our troops in the UK and not deploy them, like, it's like, are we doing this job or not? Yeah. You know, like, why are we holding back the majority of the army in the, in the not knocking at the door you know we're not not under threat of invasion let's get the truth let's get enough troops out there to be able to really take the fight to them and we never we never had that it was always like you know the battle group commanders out there had an incredibly tough challenge because they're trying you know they're trying to launch operations but it's like so when we do 
when we'd end up doing an operation, you'd have a company from this battalion, a platoon from that battalion. It was like this hodgepodge. And I think it speaks to the professionalism of all the units that we'd able to be able to work with each other, um, also the training standards of the army. But, you know, it shouldn't be that way. Battalions should be able to launch their own ops, you know. And then obviously, you know, you might bring in some specialists, but this idea of having to be hodgepodge, bringing people in, and now that wasn't the same for everyone. Like, for instance, that year you had the Welsh Guards battle group operating as a battle group. But, you know, I think a lot of other people have this experience of, you know, it's, it's almost like, you know, when you have the, the German retreat at the end of the war and they're grabbing, you're grabbing chefs and people and kids and shoving them into uniform and just like, right, we need another five bodies. Where can we find them from? Um, and um, I, I just, I just, I've never got my head around, well, we've got divisions of guys sitting back. Yeah. Why have we, this is the war. Yeah. Out here. Yeah, no, exactly. It's uh, it seems like if we'd put over, you know, our, our senior level officers and say, Hey, your troops aren't going home until this is done, whatever that mission might be. Um, we would have gotten out of there a lot sooner. Um, but it's just a crazy thing to think about 20 years. You have guys that came in whose sons then also right. fought in the same war. Um, it's just, it's just, it's just heartbreaking. And, and you know, especially seeing yeah. how we, how we left at the end of it. How'd you feel about that when you're watching everyone pack up and leave and then Taliban take over and are you watching provinces fall from the spring through the summer until the, the final evacuation? Are you thinking about it? What, uh, what were your thoughts of from, let's say, spring to the end of summer in 2021? Well, to be honest, mate, I'd gone through the process of, I would call it grief. It was a grieving process in 2014 where the areas that we were in were taken by the Taliban back then. Mm. So we didn't even like where we were, didn't even make it till 2020. Yeah, yeah. You know? So I'd already gone through that process. I remember once I turned the TV on while this was happening, the mother of one of that guys that died was on the TV. And that hit me really hard because you're like, fuck, you know, and this was only four years after the tour, you know. So really, like, you know, within four years of us being there, it was back in Taliban hands. Once, Basically, once they pulled the Brits out of Helmand, they pulled the Marines out of Helmand. That was it. Um, so I'd already kind of gone through that. I was, and, I, and it was, you know, I was under no illusion that as soon as we left, like, you know, I think it was 2011, Obama came out and said that they had this timeline. And then once yeah. he did that, I'm like, was over. Like, this right. is insane. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't, there was no shock. Obviously, there was anger at how it was done. You know, yeah. I couldn't understand the decision to close Bagram. Right. Just couldn't get my head around that. Yeah. Um, I couldn't understand the idea about, like, so the British Parliament, um, these provinces have fallen, right? And their thing was all, well, they're not going to take Kabul. And I'm like, well, how about we plan for they might? Instead of just like, so like, why not launch, why not launch the battalions now? Get them in there, give them time to get out of the airfield, set up out accordance from there so that they can process people through. So we're not just closed into this with a few gates. You know, how about we actually go out there and dominate the ground? You know, and instead our troops started landing when the civilians were already coming onto the airfield. You know, the foreign secretary was on holiday in Crete. You know, they didn't come, they didn't recall parliament until Kabul had fallen. I'm like, we've invested 20 years into this war. We've invested hundreds of lives, thousands and thousands and thousands of Afghan civilians are dead. This is supposed to be our ally. That's what we've been told. And you're not even going to recall parliament just in case. 
You know, <laughs> so, uh, by contrast, they recalled Parliament within three days when Prince Philip died. You know that so a, a royal member, a royal family member, seemed to be a higher priority to recall Parliament than the collapse of one of our allies. And I just, again, I just find it unforgivable, um, totally unforgivable. And um, you know, like I'll, I'll send you a copy of this book, mate. But I'm not telling you, you anything you don't already know. Here is that the bull should have been a much bigger disaster than it was. Our troops really snatched some, like we they snatched some kind of victory from the from from the jaws of absolute defeat and disaster and um you know what for for i think one of the things for me that were positive that i took from it was the way that va uh, veterans kind of rallied to the standards you know mm. um which i believe is probably the first time this has ever happened in 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 history because of social media um you know i'd have guys coming into my dms american guys saying like i can't get my guy out our you know um you know, we, we can't get them out, but I know two power of getting people out. Can you help? Wow. And then, you know, I make a phone call and he makes a phone call and yeah. then some guy, some guy in two power answers the phone. And the next thing they're going in the crowd and pulling these people through. And, um, you know, you think, uh, some people, Dunkirk, WhatsApp, or whatever you want to call it. It's never happened in history before. And as much as there was all this tragedy, I don't think I've ever been more proud to be a member of a vet, uh, the veteran community. Yeah. Because nobody had to take those calls. You know, people could have washed their hands of it and they didn't. And it was great to me that where the governments were failing, veterans were saying, well, you know what? You're not going to do it. We'll do it. Um, and I think that that really showed to me that a lot of people do care. And it also showed to me as well, something that I've kind of, you know, really believe strongly, and I'm sure you do yourself, is you know, Britain and a mil British military, um, American military, we have such close bonds. And, you know, it, I, it doesn't matter to me that this guy that's messaging me is a stranger. I've never talked mm. to him before. He's not even from the same country. It's like, yeah. he's American military. That's my brother in arms. I'm going to help this, do what I can to help this yeah. guy. And I had a very small part in this. So I don't want to overstate my, my, my part in it. But, um, yeah, it was great. And I know this one of the families that we helped, they're settled in America now. And, you know, there is a Afghan SF guy came out with his family and uh, the American SF guy, uh, he's the EOD guy, you know, every, every now and again, I'll just get a message from him like, Hey brother, just think, you know, and it's like, that means a lot. And I, I think a lot of us feel like we did more good in those few weeks. And I, and I, and, I, and again, yeah. to stress it, my part in it was tiny, but even that tiny part, I felt I did more good than six months wow. of being out there. Yeah, and, I hadn't um, thought of it in those terms before, but uh, you're absolutely right. And I was having that same thing. I have guys on the ground, and I'm getting these texts because people just think you can help or reach out to somebody, and you right. just do what you can. Um, but, man, and we had guys there for a while, like after the withdrawal, you know, that were still there into the fall, uh, getting people getting people out and still getting messages and, you know, doing you do whatever you can. But, um, but yeah, I, I hadn't thought of it in those terms before, but you're absolutely right. Now that I yeah. think of it like that, uh, a lot of good was done in those uh, in spite of all the barriers put in place by our, our governments that, I don't know, they had 20 years to prepare for that moment. Right. 20, 20 years. Exactly. And this is the best was... you can do. Like that's, that's tough to swallow right there. And it gives me no confidence in anyone in any leadership positions in the military or in the political sphere who are supposed to be in charge of our military commander in chief wise. Um, it's just 20 years. You had 20 years to plan and this is your plan. Good job guys. It's, it makes me very angry. And so 
in writing the novels. Like, it's very therapeutic, and I want to ask you about that too. <laughs> when you get but to very therapeutic. <laughs> I can I can write about it in the the pages of uh, you know thrillers of in fiction, um, and it yeah. is very therapeutic for me because those uh, those politicians and military leaders certainly give me a lot to work with as far as uh, <laughs> characters uh, in, these, in these novels. Um, but, uh, you know, let me read. Actually, I want to ask you about, because we're talking about uh, R&R and taking breaks. And uh, at some point, you guys, and as did we, have a decompression stop on the way home. Oh, yeah. And uh, it, it didn't really end up working out the way I think they thought. I mean, maybe it's, it's a good idea. But um, I never understood the leaving in the middle for some R&R of your six-month deployment and coming back. That, that was just, I didn't understand that at all. I never did it. Um, but you guys stopped in Cyprus, is that right, for a decompression stop at one point? Oh yeah, yeah. The 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 two days that were living in for me. Um, <laughs> so this, but this was after. So after Iraq, so they started to because okay. they realized that we were, you know, we were having a lot of uh, guys were because guys were getting back and they were going straight out drinking in the towns and mm. just getting into fights. And they were there was this like camp in the middle of nowhere in, in Cyprus, and they were like. We're going to put them there. We're going to give them all the alcohol they can drink. Oh, jeez! And um, scores are settled. Um, lads go crazy. I mean, I'm not going to go into details, but let's just say it was disgusting. And um, <laughs> I, I think, but they stopped doing it. So when we came back after Afghanistan, they put us on a two-can rule. Mm. Um, and I think the, I, I think it must have been like the cleaners went on strike or. Um, they were, you know, they were looking at indicting people for war crimes or something or crimes yeah. against humanity because what happened in that camp oh, man. Uh, was <laughs> was an ordeal, and um, yeah, but but it was a great idea, yeah, because you know we you did need to get that out of you yeah. at the end of it. You like lads needed to lads need to have a fight and a cry and a and to just act like animals and to get it all out. And you've for the first time, you know, for the first time in a month, you. You haven't got your weapons. You haven't got anything. You just you can just be a group of crazy chimpanzees with each other, mm. and I think you need that. Um, but yeah, something happened because they changed it two years later. So um, <laughs> the, yeah. the, the, I think the generals must have thought that this. They, they were like, okay, well, this is probably a good idea, but this right. is not good. If it, if it ever gets out, what's happening in this place? The PR would be would be awful. Oh wow, interesting. But you just have you see how the units get on the planes, there's black eyes, and oh, everyone's hungover. But it was great because everyone just slept all the way home. And yeah, you get back on that hangover, nobody's going out and fighting. Then everyone's going to everyone's going to bed. Oh my gosh, yeah, I guess. You know, coming back from World War II, uh, especially on on this side, you a lot of guys had to cross the Atlantic again, coming back west on ships and have that mm -hmm. time, that decompression time, a, a forced decompression travel, not necessarily a stop, but it took a while to get to get home and you could process some of that stuff before you before you got back. Um, maybe there's something there's something to that. Um, well, these these guys that came back from um, so like say two para when they came back from Kabul, they had to go into COVID quarantine. Oh, and they they weren't allowed to do it in their barracks. They had to do it in an aircraft hangar. So they did a co they so like imagine that you just come back from Kabul two weeks, and they weren't even allowed to go to their block and be in their yeah. barrack rooms. It's like no, you're staying in this aircraft hangar for a few days. That is not going to chill anybody out. Um, no. If anything, you're going to be absolutely wired to fight at the end of that. Yeah, just even more angry if you were angry yeah. before. Guess what, <laughs> yeah. man? Um, you know, I want to read this author's note here because it it sets the tone for uh brothers in arms but not only that it also just highlights what a uh thoughtful um writer that you are and such a talent um so i want to want to read this and 
you write, I never thought that I would become a drug addict. I never thought that I would want to take my own life. That all changed after Afghanistan. And this book is based on the journals that I kept during my time there. Maybe my opinions here seem raw and angry, but I have been true to how we felt at the time. Almost a decade has passed since our tour, and I have softened with hindsight. But this book is about our experience on the ground, and so it would be wrong of me to moderate our behavior and attitudes for the sake of people's feelings now that I am safe from harm and free of bullshit. That being said, I'll be the first to admit that my own knowledge of war is severely limited. I did not climb trench ladders. I did not storm beaches. I did not fight in uh, Fallujah. I did serve in Basra and in Helmand Province. But there are a lot of others who did more than me. Bearded men of the SAS who killed the enemy where they slept. Young riflemen who lost friends and limbs to IEDs on a horrifyingly regular basis. However, my own experience is the only prism through which I can offer an insight into that which I hold most sacred, my comrades. This story is for them because they deserve to be remembered forever. Though I know little of war, I feel as though I know a great deal about soldiers and the companionship that exists between them. I've written this book so that those who have never had the honor of experiencing the camaraderie can look from afar and be touched by it. And so those of you who have known the bond, a bond so special that it can only be forged on the anvil of shared danger and loss, can find in these pages memories of your own comrades, for the spirit of the soldier is constant, timeless, and universal. Finally, I have written this book for myself, so that I can open its pages and be taken back to the greatest days of my life. I lived among heroes, and this is their story. Bro, that is powerful right there. That is right. And That's the I, first time I've heard that since I, I did the audiobook like five years ago. Oh my gosh. Oh. You read the audiobook for this? Yeah. Yeah, how, yeah uh, I did, man. How, uh, how difficult was it to read the Because when you're writing, uh, um, you know, it's, you know, you can take a break, you can t- have a sip of water, you can like sit back and go, man, and then get back to it. You know, but if you're reading that, did you compartmentalize it and just be like, "Hey, I have to get through this. I have to read it," or did it was it very difficult to? Uh, oh, to it, was, it was it was difficult, bro. I was yeah. still going through. I was still going through things at the time, and um, you know, like you've got these strangers who are lovely strangers, but strangers all nonetheless staring at you through the goldfish kind of like into the goldfish box. Yeah. And, you know, there was a bit where we, we say, you know, we will remember them. That's our kind of thing at the end of every ceremony. And I couldn't get past that. Every time I tried to say it, I just sort of choked up and started crying. Um, so that bit was really hard. I had to have a minute. And um, there was a bit as well, that, but there's a bit in the book about when I go to, I have to give evidence and inquest into the death of one of the guys. Yeah. And that was, that was really hard to get through. Um, <laughs> when the book first, so we recorded in London, which is down south of England. Um, and I went for a, I went for a pint with the editor when we finished okay. recording, and um, found myself in Scotland <laughs> two days later. <laughs> no way. Yeah, oh, I found man. myself in Scotland um, with a hell of a hangover. Um, I'm glad I did the audio book. Like I'm a, I'm very much. I know you have. Is it, is it Ray? Something, yeah, Ray, Ray Porter. Porter. Yeah, does, yeah. That does your audio books. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a big believer in fiction. Hand it over to the pros. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. But I, I do, I do feel that there's something especially in this day and age with uh, podcasts, yeah. you know, like if I listen to someone's podcast and I'm like, Oh, they've done a, an autobiography or you, you I tell you, who's a great example. You've had uh, Ryan holiday on yeah. your podcast. Um, I'm a big fan of his work and um, I love the fact that he reads his own books. Yeah. 
um you know and, and and like so i don't want it for fiction if it's fiction get me get me the pro right, right. but I, I like it when people read their own personal books so that yeah. was the kind of decision behind it but i think it's one and done yeah. <laughs> I, no, I think the same I thing I, I think the same thing you know turn the fiction yeah. over to the pros but if it's uh if it's non-fiction like this it's a personal experience then um uh, there's there's oh my gosh yeah there's so much value in um in you reading it um but uh but if it's non-fiction like having non-fiction coming out in fall of 2024 on the 1983 beirut barracks bombing and uh, i'm gonna have ray um read that um because it's not me it's it's still, right yeah exactly exactly you know, like the escape the from kabul we had our friend ash ash did it you know, yeah. both Levison and I have narrated books before, okay. and we're like, "Do you want to do it? No. Do you want to do it? Fuck no." Okay. <laughs> like, yeah. right, we'll and it's like hard that. for anybody listening. It's not easy, even oh, if it's bro, not so emotional. Bro. Like this is super emotional. I had to read. Um, I didn't have to. I, I volunteered to. I was like, "Hey, why don't I do a new forward for the terminal list for a special edition when the show comes out? Uh, we'll put some photos in there from the set. I'll talk. I get questions about it all the time about how how did you do this? How did you get your book made into a series? And so I just told the story of that, and it's like six pages, and I wrote it. And it wasn't like I wrote it 10 years ago. I wrote it like a couple months before and I ran the cord for a mic like this into under a, uh, uh, under the door, into a closet. I hung a bunch of clothes all over the place until the director said, okay, that sounds good. And then I read it and it's hard and it, and, it, and it's not even emotional. It was just whatever that is. It was very difficult for me, uh, to read it. And I had respect for Ray and all the guys that do the narration before, but now I really do because I just I could barely get through six pages in a few hours. It was crazy. Um, and those guys are reading. I mean, uh, I had Scott Brick, uh, like Scott Brick and Ray Porter are like the two top guys in narration. And uh, he read Atlas Shrugged, like oh my Ayn Rand's God. Atlas Shrugged, which for those listening is yeah. uh, or watching. I mean, it's like this thick. I had one in here the other day because he was on the podcast and I held it up for him and asked him what it was like to do that. Uh, but that's pretty serious. If you're reading Atlas Shrugged, it is an audiobook. He said it was 60 plus hours, I think he said um, on the podcast. But that's a long time to be reading. Oh. So do, you, do you read your books out loud when you when you finish writing? Do you read them back out loud? Because I know you said about the character names and stuff, but. You yeah, because I I feel like that's kind of something that I can't remember who I who I who I got given that bit of advice from, but mm. it, it does. It, I do think it's um, a really worthwhile thing doing. You know, I haven't done it until this last book, the one that comes out here May sixteenth, Only the Dead, and I didn't read the whole thing, but I would stop at certain points because it was uh, complex as far in, in areas that I don't know intimately, like the financial world. Uh, mm. So I had to be sit there and say, okay, I'm going to read this. Um, and, uh, how does this, how does this sound to somebody that is not in finance and how is it going to sound to somebody who is in finance? Um, mm. but so I, so I did that a few times, but I didn't read the whole thing. It were certain passages, maybe a full chapter here and there, but it's something that I think is valuable. I think if I had a little more time that I would have read the, I, I should probably start reading the whole thing, um, in parts after I finish a chapter, like stop, read it through. Um, because I mean, I read it through without verbalizing it, but actually verbalizing it and see how much I catch. Uh, somebody told me a long time ago that they read their books backwards, meaning they start with the epilogue and then go to like chapter 68, chapter 67, whatever, however it's set up. Um, and that they catch more because their brain isn't in tune with everything going from the beginning all the way through. And so they're catching a lot of the things that, uh, your brain puts in place as what should be there because you oh, think shit. it's there rather than what is there. So an an instead of an and, 
like you can catch some of those type of things reading it from the epilogue backwards um, a little bit uh, better. It works a little better for them than it does reading it from the beginning all the way through and catching those sorts of things. So I haven't tried it yet, but I think there probably is something to that. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I, think, I mean, anything that's kind of um, shaking things up and, and taking you out. Because sometimes, you know, you're so familiar with something, your yeah. eyes just read so fast, yep. fast you know. ahead. I mean, dude, I like, it's, it's like the editing process. You know, you, you've gone through this book so many times. You've showed it to friends. You've had them come back with notes. You've had editors, proofreaders. Yep. And then when Brothers in Arms came out, my brother said there's a spelling mistake on page one. Yeah, like, it happens How every is time. This, is possible? It happens every time. I had uh, <laughs> It happened to me two days ago. And uh, I went back, I was, I did a podcast. I went back upstairs and I started to read a few passages for the, the audio clip section. So I try to find some that are going to be between 30 seconds and a minute that we can uh, uh, grab from the audio recording and then put on social channels. It's kind of like a teaser uh, that don't give too much of the book away, but still sound cool. Um, so I was going through that and I, and I came to this part and I'm like, oh, I changed this like three months ago. Uh, this one word. And I, and I went back, I'm like, it's, it's gotta be changed. And I, I went and I looked at the third pass. I went second pass, first pass, went back into the word document. I'm like, and it was from the little a research and I've grabbed, grabbed the book. I'm not going to say what it is because it's semi-embarrassing. Uh, so I had the book out, there's a movie of it. And I checked that just to make sure there wasn't a difference. Cause sometimes they change names and books and films. And I just wanted to make sure I was right. So I had those all, all there and I swore that I changed it. But somehow my mind, as I read it all these times through, put in what was supposed to be there rather than what was actually there. It's just, it's right. a weird thing. It's a weird, uh, you know, psychological uh, little, uh, I don't know, tick, I guess. It's just a weird, a weird deal. Um, but did you keep journals the whole time you were in or you've done that your whole life? Or what, where did the journaling come from? No, no. So it was basically after Iraq. So when I did the, uh, the bomb disposal job, so we, uh, I was a lance corporal. And we had a sergeant leading the team, but he got uh, diarrhea and vomiting. So it was like, right, Corporal Jones, you're leading the you're the, next. as the force protection <laughs> team for the ATO. You lead the convoy out, wow. and you set up the incident control point and everything. And like, I'm as green as green can be, and I have no memory of any single one of those fuck ops because I was just blacked out with like fear and adrenaline and. Wow. Um, it's like what Vinny, like like Vinny said when he came on about, um, you know, like those. Sometimes you just, you know, you when he did that audition and he and he blacked out. There's certain points I had it happen when I had when I had to give evidence in in the court, just black out. And I'm sure at the time I probably had some stuff that I could have written down about it, but mm. it was, you know, it, but the the long term memory of it was gone. Mm. And also just things like you remember that you had like some of the like laughs that you have in these places. Like, that's one of the best things about it. People always think, like, you know, obviously, like, the excitement of a firefight or something is great, but I don't think I've ever laughed as hard as I have on deployments. Yeah. Um, and in Iraq, I kept very short notes, but I was like, this isn't going to cut it. Like, I've already yeah. forgotten so much stuff. Right. So in Afghanistan, it helped as well that there was no destroy. Like, we're living in uh, compounds with no electricity, yeah. no running water, anything like that um so you know you've got to just you've got to have something to distract yourself so and again there's only so many books i could take out with me yeah um i think the afghan campaign made a trip out there with me actually. nice i like it um I, yeah i took I, I i took it out i was a big bernard cornwell fan too took a lot of his stuff out the sharp stuff um but yeah i just 
it was something to kind of do. And then I wrote, you know, I used to write a lot of letters. Okay. Uh, and I think I had it in my mind at that point that I wanted to write okay. about soldiering. Um, I was never the best soldier. I think I was a decent one, solid, but, you know, never the best. But I thought, you know, like I'm a big fan of like, I've read a lot of war memoirs growing up. Okay. And, you know, and again, like, you know, kind of Steve has these characters in his, his books who are, you know, the, the kind of the chroniclers, the warrior poets, whatever you want to call them. I definitely wouldn't consider myself a poet, but I mean, back then the poetry was how they chronicled, you know, the, the events. And it became very important to me that, because I saw this after Iraq as well, it was like rug, everything under the rug. Yeah. No one was talking. There was no films being made about it. There was no TV shows. There was no books. And I'm like, this stuff's all going to get forgotten. I mean, like, how's this going to be remembered in 30 years? It's not even being remembered now. Mm. And I, I'd be the first to say that, like, what I experienced, I think, was was common of what an infantry soldier experienced. It wasn't, you know, Dev Group stuff or SAS stuff. And it wasn't, you know, like, sometimes you have, like, it wasn't, you know, like one of these pl rifle platoons that finds themselves being overrun. It wasn't anything like that. But most soldiers' experience aren't like that. Yeah. And I thought, I want to speak for the soldier who's going out and poking for IEDs every day. I want to, yeah. you know, the soldier who's standing on, you know, standing on guard duty. It's three o'clock in the morning. He hasn't slept for days. And he's thinking like, you know, questioning his life decisions right. about what led to him to be in Afghanistan. I was like, that's what I wanted to write about. So the other thing as well, that's some very funny, like our group of friends, we called ourselves the firm, you know, yeah. as a group of like experienced NCOs and yeah, God, we just had so much fun. <laughs> like it was just, it was just fun. And I, and it was, it was, you know, it was, it was nice to write about. And like those journals now, as you can imagine, are like prized possessions, mm -hmm. you know, like if it, if it was a fire, you know, they're the first thing it's getting rescued. Right. Like it's, it's, it's the journals. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad I got them, you know, open them up and there's dust and see the sweat drips oh, wow. in there and everything. And, um, you know, I'm really, like, I'm really glad that I, I used those and I started writing, um, the book. So I, I did, um, I, I worked on the ships doing the anti-piracy security for a while. Yeah. So you came home and then you got out and then is that a contract work? I, yeah. I worked in the gym and uh, I was really lucky. Like the gym I worked at, there's a professional rugby team there. Mm. And that was almost like a surrogate military family that I kind of joined onto. Um, and then, and then, so I did that for a bit. And then one day the gym went out of business. So, um, um, I, I, my friend had told me about working on the ships and it was rock star wages at the time. Mm. And, you know, you'd go out to places like India and, you know, you'd have a week paid, you know, 500 bucks a day to be sitting on a beach. And I was like, this is absolutely brilliant. <laughs> and then while I was on there, I, I wanted to write. And I thought, you know what? Book's a lot of words. Screenplay's like 110 pages. I think I'll write a screenplay and be a millionaire in a All year right. or two. So <laughs> I started doing that. But then I had the free time and the, and the income on the ships that I was able to start going to America. And everyone kind of goes to Hollywood. And everyone's trying to make it in Hollywood. And I thought, well, where do people go when they've already made it in LA? So they go to Malibu. <laughs> so I'll go to Malibu instead. So I went to Malibu. I sublet a place there that I, I, I had all year round. I found out the guy that I was living with when I was away on the ships, he was Airbnb. And, well, it wasn't Airbnb at the time, but Craigslist in my room out no and collecting rent on my room. Oh my so that was a good introduction to how people operate in LA. Wow. Amazing. Um, but, but I, I got to meet, so I go to the, the gym in Malibu, Malibu Gym, it's called Diamond's Gym now. And like, you know, I'd be seeing people like Sean Penn in there and stuff working out, Jared Butler would come in. And like, I, I was I always, always had this rule of never pitch 
any of these people. They're in the gym. That's mm. a sacred place. But it just, I was like, get used to being around these people so that when you do end up in a room with them one day and you get that opportunity to pitch, you don't choke. Okay. And um, I remember once I was, uh, I was in the showers there and it was uh, this old guy and he was doing the old flossing with the towel. Oh, old guys in gyms that I want That's to do. Hilarious. And um, he was like, we got talking and um, he was like, what do you do? And I told him, he's like, why are you out here? And I said, oh, I wanna, I'd like to be a screenwriter. And he turned out, he was, I can't remember which one now, but he, he'd been ahead of a studio. Oh, wow. And, you know, I'd get bits of advice from yeah. guys like that. Um, unfortunately, then the, the money fell out of, of, ship, of the shipping work really quite quickly. Mm. So I wasn't able to continue my living on the beach <laughs> lifestyle. Um, but, it, you know, things at first, mate, it was, it was, really, um, it was funny. I mean, I always laugh when I hear you like, the, the, you know, I know you found this funny too, the overnight success thing. Yeah. But I did actually think I was going to be an overnight success because I wrote a few scripts um two, few pilots a few things nice. i got a manager and they oh, wow. got me on to, they, they got me some meetings with a, a company that's on the universal loss you know oh, they wow. have the first look deal with universal so i drive into universal and i'm driving on the studio i'm like i've made it this is this is this is great and we went through the process of developing the script and then um they dropped it and i was like god i've just put a lot of time into this um and i thought this could be the next 10 years I could have it. It doesn't mean that the idea is not good. It doesn't mean that the writing is not good, but you know, it just doesn't work out. And I thought, you know what, if I write a book, there's always the option, worst case scenario of self publishing. Um, so I thought, well, why don't I do that? Get settled in, get, get working as a writer, being full time writing. And then I can, um, once I've done that, then I can start writing spec scripts. And if they don't sell, it doesn't matter. I'm still employed as a, as a writer. So um, I thought, well, what, what can I write? And I thought, well, I've got these journals. Um, why don't I start writing these up? Right. But what I did was, it was a bit cheesy. I started this, I think I, think I started kind of doing bits and pieces on it in like, 20, like end of 2014. But then I started looking at like, what are the submission guidelines for uh, uh, agents? So I thought, I need to get an agent. You know, I want to go, go, go that route. And all of them were asking for the first 10,000 words. So I thought, well, I'm just going to write 10,000 words. <laughs> and so I did that. I wrote, I wrote the first 10,000. Yeah. And I sent it out. And for those and listening with, with nonfiction, the... you can do that. You can sell uh, a yeah. chapter, oh, yeah. this an is outline, an idea, 10,000 words. Like from the nonfiction side of the house, you can do that. Fiction, you have to have the whole thing done first for the most part. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 100%. Um, but you know, they come back and some of them would say, you know, I, I was, I was lucky. I got, I, I got, um, you know, quite a few agents interested straight away and they were like, well, we'd like the rest of the book. And I'm like, oh, I haven't written the rest of the book. Here's what, here's, here's, but here's why I think you can tell with 10,000 words that I can write. Yeah. The reason I haven't done it is because the market not might not be right for this kind of book right now because military books, especially in the UK, go through cycles. Like right oh. now, it's quite hard to do them. Okay. At the time I did this, they, they couldn't. So I was like, I don't want to waste a year or whatever it's going to be working on a book oh. and waste your time pitching a book that's not going to sell. What I'm trying to pitch you on is myself. Um, and a couple of agents were like, yeah, love it. They, they got that attitude. Mm -hmm. You know, there were some others who were like kind of, more the kind of the snobby. Well, this is this isn't how it's done. I'm like, well, yeah. I don't want to work with you then. I'm, yeah. I like I like disruptive models and stuff, you know. Nice. So it's like, so and and it turned out I was right because, um, you know, we my I got an agent, 
And she said, well, let's expand it to 40,000 words so they can really see that you can write. So mm. we did that. And that landed me a meeting with Penguin. Um, and I went in, so I went into Penguin and um, they were like, yeah, you know, it, it's not a good time for the book. Because mm. I would have taken like peanuts for that book at the time. Yeah. I just wanted to get that first deal, you know? Right. Um, and um, I, was, I was getting desperate too because the money in shipping was dropping, drop Every couple yeah. of months there was a pay cut come in. Okay. So I was like, this needs, this needs to happen fast. But I went into Penguin and they were like, well, what, you know, what are you interested in? I'm like, well, I've always kind of fancied doing a book about the Roman Legion. And that's how we ended up with Ambush, which is, you know, you've got in front of you there. Um, yes. They are was, right there. Bam. Look at that. Uh, and, and then uh, I see behind you, what's the, uh, the poster there behind you? So that is, so like, again, the Penguin guys would, because when Siege came out, they were like, let's do something fun for the, uh, I saw you just had your um, advanced copies in. Yeah. So they were like, let's do something special for the, for the advanced copies. So we did this. Um, you might not be able to see on the side, but it's got the Born to Kill. On oh, the side nice. Of the yeah, helmet. I can't quite see it, but that's um, just oh, like, like the Full Metal Jacket movie. That's so wild. we basically copied the Full Metal Jacket poster, uh -huh. but put a, put a, put, yeah, but put a, put a Roman. Um, because that's you know that was kind of the tone we were going for. So how did yeah how did you go from from this uh, from the nonfiction um, over to this over to to writing what you wanted to write about? Yeah. So um, did you get a bit what I said about the meeting with Penguin? Yeah. Get that bit. Yeah, you're going to the meeting with Penguin. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So essentially, I then I, I I didn't even finish Brothers in Arms. It was the 40,000 word sample was still there. Okay. But then I did. Um, ambush but then the first books i actually had published were these two short books with james patterson i was gonna I ask that yeah I, I didn't know what order things came in um how did that come about if yeah, it, especially as your first ones like how did that come about so i mean this is the um, this is the perk of having an agent is that they will bring you work as well as selling your work they can bring you work and my agent said to me she's like look you know because i hadn't had anything published at this point they were like, James Patterson's doing this new series of books called Bookshots. Um, she said, like, look, it's going to be a long shot, but do you want to throw your name into the mix? And I was like, yeah, of course I do. Get, you know, put me in, coach. Yeah. So um, originally I was put down for one, and they, they really liked what I came back in. And I was like, look, I can do more. I'll, like, I'll take as many of these as, as you can give me. How did they put you so down they, for – they gave me – You mean, how, what do you mean put you down for one? Like they gave you the job or they, they submitted you to yeah, do so one? Yeah, so like – so essentially, they put me. They put me in and said that, like, um, you know, and, and I'm not sure what the process was on their end. Um, all I know is that, you know, the agent said that, you know, she had someone interested, and they had these, um, you know, that they, they were like, oh, we're looking for ideas on this and ideas on that. So I wrote some outlines, and they liked one. And so there, there was a there was a number of of projects that they were looking for. And I was like, well, I'm going to go for, I was like, well, oh, if I'm going to go for one, let's go for two. Okay. Yeah. So I did two and they gave me, they gave, they gave me, they gave me both. Wow. And then, um, the third one was a follow-up. It was originally, so that we ended up being this one here, this was originally going to be a short one. Okay. And then as we were working on the outline, Jim and the team were like, you know what, let's make this a, a full length book. So I got to do this. I think I did this in. 2017. Wow. So this came out two years before brothers in arms did. Okay. Um, but I mean, that was just phenomenal because, you know, I mean, James Parsons, James Parsons, absolute powerhouse. Yeah. And, um, I, I, and again, like, it's fair to say that I had a pretty 
strong ego at that point. So I'm like, <laughs> oh, this is just, you know, just working with James Parson. And like now I'm like, oh, work for James Parson. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, you kind of appreciate things a lot more as you kind of like, the more you learn about the craft and the more you realize how much you don't know and how much other people do, yeah. you know, it kind of um, like, it, you know, I just, it was, it was phenomenal because, you know, every airport that I go into or every, yeah. every store, it was in there awesome. and it was just great. And I had this, dude, I had this great moment. Like my family's always been incredibly supportive of me, but when you go for a job, which is, um, so I'd already kind of like annoyed my family a little bit. I was supposed to go into the police when um, I left the military, when I left Iraq, okay. I had a training place to start. And then, um, I saw this, I was like, you know, like I went to the fitness test and like, I did, I, and it was just so poor. Yeah. And I was like, I don't want to work in this environment. Yeah. I love, I love writing. I'm really happy with that. I've got a lot of, um, things going on and, and I kind of want to like, I love what Steve does where he just writes these different books of like just one-off books. And, yeah. And like, so obviously the Roman series you got there, then I enjoy that series, but I, you know, I'm sure you the same way. I don't want to be pigeonholed. Yeah. I want to just write what I want to write. And like you're doing it now with a Beirut book, you know, yeah. it's awesome to be able to just go, this is something that interests me. Yeah. So I feel will bring value to people. I'm going to dig into this book. And so that's kind of like where I'm at now. I've, I, 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 you know, like the military is in us, you know, we're history geeks. It's mm -hmm. what we enjoy. If I can keep doing that for the rest of my life, that's brilliant. But the the next frontier is definitely um, it's definitely the screen. Um, you know, I really like I've I've um, at Christmas time um, I came off worse in a fight and uh, had to lay up in bed with some bad ribs for a bit. Oh man! I, I for the first yeah <laughs> um, yeah I'm not as young as I used to be and apparently not as fast. <laughs> but um, so um, it was. They still hurt oh, <laughs> a lot, man. Um, and um, yeah. So I was like watching. A, I was watching a lot of TV and film for the first time in ages, and you know I enjoyed the Terminal List. I had a question for you, actually. Yeah, yeah. You know, so in his garage, oh. where did the did the crossed axes? Which came? Did you have a crossed axe thing of yours, or did it come from from the books, or did you already have that? Yeah. So I, uh, you know, as I started down this path, I was uh, thinking, you know what? Uh, I need a logo. And this is before the book even, even came out. And I had given my kids at my retirement ceremony, I'd given them uh, four things. I gave them uh, a Bible. I gave them an antique compass and I gave them those and said, these are, these are to guide you. Um, I gave them a, a copy of the constitution and said, here are your natural rights. Are, are written down in here. And then I handed him that tomahawk and I said, and here's the means to defend them. And so I had all three of their tomahawks uh, in, in my office. And then I had mine um, on my desk and I just started thinking, you know, I need a, a logo as I start down this path. And so I, I took them, took two of them, picked one of the kids up and mine, and then I put them on the ground. And then I just took a picture of them uh, right above. And I, I uh, sent it to, to Daniel Winkler who makes those tomahawks. And I said, Hey, do you mind if I, I use this for my logo as I get out? We've been, we've been friends for a long time. And he's like, it would be an honor. And I said, Oh, awesome. And I think at this point I, I had the book deal, but nothing had come out. It was still about eight, 
months away or so, something like that. So I sent it to Simon and Schuster because I didn't know they have nothing to do with logos or they have nothing to do with like any of that sort of thing. Uh, but I sent it to my publisher and said, what do you think about, about this? And Emily Bessler loved it. And uh, so that, that's how that was born. And uh, so I had, you know, as I started writing that book, I was obviously very aware of um, the Rambo survival knife in the eighties um, and how that was became associated right. with that character. Uh, and I thought, what's a, what's a, something like that for the, the 21st century? Something that has a connection to me, connection to the past, connection to warriors, and that uh, that tomahawk was it. So, um, so yeah, I put it into the book, and now of course it's on the in the series, and it's on the it was in the wall of James Reese's garage, and I have I have them mounted on the wall right over here. Uh, so yeah, it became became the 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 symbol, and people seem to really gravitate towards it. So that's how that one was born. Yeah, look, it's, it's I, I love seeing little things like. So this uh, screenplay I've just been doing now, you know, little things like when I'm, if I'm, if someone's on a screen and looking at a phone number, I'll try and put something in there, like a date of a battle pertaining yep. to that guy's regiment or Absolutely. something like that. I love, I love the little Easter eggs yep. in there, mate. I love them. Yep. I do um, the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what I love. Cause it's like, you know, I was reading, uh, I, have you ever read Philip Kerr's books? No. Oh, mate. He's like I came. I can't remember how I came across him. I think it was like a an yeah. airport. Like, yeah. He's uh, um, unfortunately he's passed away now. He's one of the most gifted writers I've ever read. Brilliantly researched books. Um, it's about a private eye um, in uh, in Germany during the Weimar years, and then the you know under the Nazis. Um, and uh, you know he he's really he's really good at that that kind of thing and. Um, yeah, I think I just kind of, I think it was just one of those ones where I picked him up in an airport once and then I was like, got home, just ordered the entire season. Unfortunately, I'm almost finished on the last book now. Um, so I think I, I'll give it a few years and then, nice. you know, kind of start from the beginning again. But, <laughs> build, um, build them up, you know, yeah. it's very much in that kind of like the Raymond Chandler kind of, nice. you know, vein of things. But set in Nazi Germany, it's just oh, such, wow. such a great series. Um, and uh, I think Tom Hanks has the rights to it, actually. Oh, um, nice. I think uh, I... Yeah, so I don't know like what stage that's at, but um, I mean, God, I'd, I'd I'd love to see that show. But like, that's something I really want to get into, me. Like, I, I want to um, I want to earn my I want to earn my visa for America. Um, I'd like to you know like to like to live in the states. I I do I consider myself I, I identify as transatlantic, which is an American <laughs> born into a British body. I got it. Um, and yeah, I got you. That's a great you know, line. I got to put that in the book. I, I, I absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Feel free, mate. Um, but I, I, you know, like a, a lot of my friend group is is in the states, and it's the place to make screen stuff. Yeah. And um, you know, you live in one of my favorite states, uh, Utah. I don't know, it's just something about it. Monument Valley is my favorite place oh, nice. on earth. Um, just something, just just something about America, dude. I, I I don't know what it is, but I just feel I feel full of energy, you know, when I'm there, and I I do think it's a land of opportunity, you know. I've, I can be critical of uh, uh, of what's happened in Afghanistan. I can be critical of what happened in the COVID and everything like that. But I think sometimes people conflate criticism of government with criticism of country, and it's two different, two very different things. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I can't think of anywhere better in the world to live, honestly. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of like how I see my future going. If it goes the way I'd like to, is writing books, working on screenplays. Uh, Living in America, and at some point, I, I really want kids. I mean, COVID's kind of derailed the derailed the whole 
meeting a partner thing, which um, which I believe is necessary for <laughs> for having kids. It's not so something I've, I could do. So alone. I've heard. Yeah. Um, so like you know, because I, I think as well, mate, and this is something that you know you get out your characters because I'm writing these characters, and I and I just realized I'm like I'm writing a lot of stuff about fatherhood mm. and, and and things like that here. I thought I'm really living out. I'm really living out my desires through my characters here, yeah. you know, because fa- I was noticed, you know, you talk about themes with your books, yeah. you've got the sticky notes and, yeah. you know, and I was like, God, this, I was like, fa- fatherhood has been a disproportionately big thing of my themes recently. And I, I thought like, uh, it's time, it's time to put away childish things <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, uh, so I'm getting serious about that. So th- th- that's kind of how I, I see things going, mate. But I also like to have the flexibility of, of, um, you know, I had I had and I had that one of those great moments recently where you have an you ha, I already had an idea for a, for a character, yeah, but I didn't know where I was going to set him. I didn't know what the story was going to be. Okay, I just had this idea of a fun character because I I really wanted I write I want to write serious things and I want to write I enjoy writing comedy. I enjoy mm. writing wacky things, and I had a dream. It was quite a serious dream, and I woke up in the morning and I was like, oh my god, that's it. That's the story. That's mm. that's everything. So I lay in bed. I'm desperate for a pee. I'm closing my <laughs> eyes and I'm trying to replay the dream as many times as I can. Yeah. So then I'm like grabbing my notepad, right. running to the bathroom, like writing, like scribbling the notes down. Like I've got to get this out. Got to get yeah. this out. And then the next two days, I'm like phone off. Nobody speak to me. Nice. And I got it all out and I got the outline oh, and I awesome. looked at it and I was like, there it is. That's the, it's there. Awesome. Um, and that, that to me, like when you get that, when you get those, yeah, that the, those initial moments of ideas, are like that is as close as excitement of a firefight that I think I'm ever going to get. Yeah, again, because yeah. it's so right, and you see the whole world opening up. Right, it's, it's just yeah. I mean, and and the uninterrupted true. time is so key. Uh, something like that happened to me over the summer. But I only had the uninterrupted time because my wife was going to either drop off or pick up one of the kids at a camp or for whatever reason, I had a full day uh, with no one here, which never happens. Um, we have three kids, dog. It's just it's chaos all the time. Um, but I sat down, I had one full day to not be sequestered up where I hide in my office and, and write. But in like the front room, could have the fire going, the whole thing, uh, nice view, the, you know, the kitchen's close by. And I just sat there and I just uh, typed this whole thing out. Um, and then when I was done, which I mean, it takes a long time, full day. And when I finished, I was like, man, it would have been so easy for one little thing to change and totally derail that day. And then this idea would not be fully outlined. Might even might not have even gotten written down to come back to exactly. later. Um, and I'm just like, oh man. Uh, but I, I felt so so fortunate that I had that day and got to put it all down and it was uninterrupted, put the phone in another room and, and all that. But I find that very necessary. Um, when I'm writing, phone in the other room for sure. Oh, yeah. But to have a full day to think of a new idea and to outline the whole thing, and uh, that's very rare, very rare um, around here. So I understand what you're talking about. And then I was done with it. I was yeah. like, oh man, this is awesome. It's a great feeling, incredible feeling. But mate, like you said, though, it's like how many of those other times where you've had those ideas where you didn't get that time. I, I don't like they, thinking about they, that. And because they, they're <laughs> like, yeah, but maybe they come back. I mean, because this is one of the things I've written. Like, I wrote like a lot of screenplays in the early days and stuff. And now you kind of think, I mean, one of the things is it's reps. Yeah. You know, um, you've got to read, you've got to write, and uh, and a lot of it is just getting your reps in. 
but then you know i do think then things come back around to you so some character that you wrote in something that maybe you didn't use mm-hmm. then all of a sudden it clicks and you're like yep. wait a minute he's perfect for this and you start right. pulling people out but those those moments of just an idea that you're super passionate about i only get them a few times a year which is good because there's only so many <laughs> right, like right. you know you can do right. a year i mean like steve calls it the muse you know yeah. I, maybe you could call it like this collective consciousness or yeah. whatever i I don't know where they come from, but when it happens, mate, what a feeling. Seriously. No, I get it. And now I'm getting it with the uh, ideas for different screenplays and different stories outside of the the James Reese universe. And so I have a computer where I keep all those that's separate and gets saved to the cloud and they have their own folders and, and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, I love I love that. So but once again, those interruptions, they kill you. They just kill. The, it's just it's tough. So I understand exactly what you're talking about. I love that feeling, which is why I'm smiling. So I'm thinking back to that that last one. But, <laughs> it's a great uh, feeling, oh, man. Well, hopefully we'll get you out here um, in person and hopefully we get you out here to, to stay and working on some scripts and developing projects and all the rest of it. Now that I know that's where you're, you're going, I'll, I'll, I won't forget it. I, I'll say that. So, mate, uh, I, I appreciate that, bro. And I, I'd lo- love to come see you, mate. Uh, yes. Maybe not when it's a snowstorm. Seriously. <laughs> it's maybe a lot of snow we'll, right we'll now. For some bad weather. <laughs> maybe go and do a little bit of hunting, mate. Awesome. Um, awesome. Don't get to do any of that. Yeah. Don't get to do any of that over here. Um, I'm, ho- I'm hopefully going up to Montana in October to do a, to do oh, some. Nice. So I'm excited for that. Awesome. Um, yeah, but because I've been my first. Like I, I haven't gone and hunted anything since Afghanistan. So okay. I'm, I'm excited. Nice. There are some similarities. Um, but me, I've got like a. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll, but I'll get you the copy of the, of, oh, of this uh, this new book out, mate. And I've got I've got some I've got a few other things for you as well, mate. But um, Nate Nate will not forgive me if I do not plug the movie because I'm under strict instructions uh, <laughs> to 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 plug this. So yeah, I mean, I, off the top of my head now, it's available on Hulu, Showtime, uh, and Amazon. Yeah. Um, so it's an MVP of the movie, which guys if guys want to listen to, they can listen to the episode with Nate. So I won't go yep. into what it was, but that was a lot of fun. I, I you know Nate's a great guy, man. Um, I really enjoy working with him on that, and that's something that I've learned as well, mate. Like so. One of the things that, like, when I first started doing writing, I was like, oh, this is a lonely job. Which, when you, like, I, I enjoy sometimes. I, I'm kind of like, I like my time on my own. Yeah. But I thought, I don't want to just be working on my own all the time. Yeah. So, like, now I've, I've started to do a lot more projects with, so we had, you had Dean Stott on your podcast, right? Yep. I worked on Dean's book with him. Oh, nice. I know Dean's now a really good mate of mine. Oh, yeah, what a great guy. Good, good friends of mine. Great, great guys. They came to the MVP premiere. Actually. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, because really they're right. They're out there, uh, California now. But uh, oh, that's exactly. fantastic. Yeah, great guys. They're great so, guys. Yeah. So you know, being so being able to work with people like you know work with people like Dean is great because. You know, people pay good money to go and see him speak, and I'm like, I'm getting this on the phone every day as we're working on it. I'm like, so you know, we're we're he's talking about his, you know, his his world record breaking, doing the, right. the you know, uh, cycling the Pan American Highway, and I'm like, Crazy. I finish. I'm like, well, I'm ready for the gym now. You know, oh, jeez, you know, so yeah. Work, working with other people. I mean, um, and I think something else that you said that I picked up on, which I think is really important, is as a writer, you are a, a cog in the machine. But you're also the kind of the ignition, um, because like without that idea, like you know, the terminal list, you probably had what hundreds, if not probably thousands, of people involved in it at some point or another, right? But that doesn't happen without you getting that idea down first, and that I think like gives you like because like you're literally putting people's food on the table. It's crazy in, in a sense because 
responsibility, but it's also like, again, it brings you back into the team, being bigger than some, a part of something bigger than yourself. Yep. Yep. Um, so I think that's something that really is really cool about screenplays. Yeah, that's, that definitely stands out because I'm working on uh, screenplays at the same time that I'm writing. Um, and it's writing, obviously, very solitaire. I have, a, I have a, a room up there where I do it. It's just me. And no one is, not my agent, not my publisher, editor, no one's saying, hey, why don't you do this for the next one? Or, hey, do you mind? I think we need to lighten up on this stuff here. Like, no, there's nothing, no direction at all. So I have 100% uh, complete creative control over everything that I do with the novels, um, which is fantastic. And I didn't know that's how it was going to be when I entered. And I think probably everybody has a different relationship, publisher, editor, depending on what publishing house they're with and what editor they have and what what uh, agent they have. But uh, but I get no direction on that on that front, which now I love because it's all, I, don't, I, I can't hold anybody. I can't say, oh man, I shouldn't have listened to, to her mm. because now that didn't work. And I, there's, so there's no animosity that's built up because I took some advice that didn't right. work out. It's all on me. Uh, screenplays on the other hand, my goodness. And you can write, sit there and still be alone and, and write one. But once you get to that, st that phase where now you've sold it and now you're developing it and you have a writer's room and you all these other ideas are coming in, Man, it's such a different experience, uh, equally as cool, but extremely different because now you're having all these other ideas come in. And sometimes I wonder, oh, what if I had that for the novels? Uh, but I like to keep it separate. I like to have the novels, just me. And then I like to have this experience that's very collaborative, very team oriented, uh, especially if you get the right team. I've heard horror stories about getting the wrong teams together uh, in these writers rooms, <laughs> but we have such a strong team and everybody's working so well together. Um, it's incredible. So, uh, and I'm learning a ton that then I can take and move over to the novels as well. So hopefully everything continues to get better as I go forward and continue to, to learn. Um, but, uh, but yeah, totally different animals doing the screenplay, especially when you have a writer's room together and then you send it up the chain. Uh, corporate uh, goes up through the MRC chain and Amazon chain and then back down with notes. Um, and sometimes they're good and sometimes you have to uh, go out and, and argue for why something should be a certain way. But it's much more team-oriented, much more like being in the military. Um, whereas being on my own, I'd really do enjoy that too. So I, I enjoy both. Um, and hopefully one is going to, you know, continues to make me better at the other. That's, that's the hope anyway. I, I think so. And I'm going to give Steve one last mention in this, um, because I spoke to him about this because I noticed in his writing style that it was almost like the, the writing was setting up shots and it was sh like, there's no word wasted which mm -hmm. is really important in um, screenplay. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, it's a, a lot of, you're trying to squeeze in everything oh, yeah. you can into that space. Which is very different and, for those listening uh, than beneficial. a novel where you can, like, just write and, like, I'm going to get this thought out there and I'm going to expound upon this for a little while. And, but, yeah, a screen, screenplay, that's not, that doesn't exist. No, and I, and I think doing the two disciplines, because they are different, but it, it's, they're, they're, they're complementary. And I think both of yep. them, like, one, one, one makes the other better. So which, which, which one, if gun to your head, if you had to choose one, which one you take in? Probably the novels, just because I do enjoy being alone and I do enjoy that responsibility and taking ownership of every single piece of something. Um, but, uh, so I, if I had to choose like gun to my head type thing, you know, that, that's what I would, would do. Um, yeah. but I really enjoy, the the other as well. Um, but, but they're both there. Yeah. They're, they're different, but complementary animals. I guess that's a good way to yeah. put it. Yeah. I, I'm the same way. There's, there's different challenges in, in 
in, in both in, in both of them. But yeah, same same kind of position. I'd, I'd hate to have to choose, but if I had to, yeah. you know, books are my first love. So yeah, yeah exactly. Be loyal. Yeah, you know, and I grew up, you know, grew up reading. I didn't grow up reading screenplays. I grew up watching the movies, um, but reading the books. And so that's, you know, I have such great memories of reading books. Maybe if I grew up reading screenplays, I don't know how someone does that. But if they did, I can see them, uh, you know, naturally grab or just watch movies. Maybe didn't read the books and just watch movies um, and then gravitated towards screenplays uh, later in high school or college or whatever it might be. Um, but yeah, no, I enjoy all of it. I enjoy creating and and uh, creating these other other worlds and uh, also, you know, not uh, being part of that military machine anymore. Okay. People ask me if I miss it and you're, you know, a lot of people say, yeah, they miss it or they miss that. Nope. I do not miss it. It was a good run. It was a good 20 year run. Uh, I feel very fortunate uh, to have been able to do what I did, um, but I don't live back there. That's a, that's a foundation upon which to build. And uh, uh, so I don't, I don't live back in those days, uh, if that makes sense. Um, uh, yeah. Being part of that military machine, once again, that's you're dealing with those same uh, senior level officers and politicians <laughs> that we talked about earlier that uh, I write about with such disdain in the pages of my novels, yeah. which is, once again, therapeutic. Well, that, 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 that's it, mate. It's good to have the release valve yeah. um, sometimes. <laughs> I'm looking forward because I saw you see us uh, put on that post yesterday that this one's your most brutal yeah. novel. So I'm, yep. I'm looking to see. I'm looking to see how you go more brutal than disemboweling someone around the tree. That was a good one. Uh, People <laughs> like that one. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah. That I, was. That... <laughs> and I, I didn't start but off think, any of them the to thing... make them like what they what they become. They I had that theme, and then uh, but but I don't start off saying this one's going to be the most brutal or this one's going to be the longest. Um, I have an outline, but then that story really develops over time, and it's just as long as it becomes and as brutal as it becomes is just the natural course of events as I write. Well, what makes something like that powerful is that you're not making that up off the top of your head. Like that's from research and mm. using like using a real exact, like this is what people have done to each other in recent history. Yeah. I mean, God, like you've only got to look at Mexico um, and some of the stuff that goes on there. And, you know, I, I think that sometimes, I don't find things kind of gripping or thrilling where it's it's quite obviously just made up, right? What's the what really kind of you know puts the eebie-jeebies at me is when I know that there's something is based in that, that this has happened to people. And, oh, and, and well, recently. then you'll you'll like this one. You'll like this one. This one is uh, based. <laughs> let's see, in the not not too distant past, but uh, the uh, interview scene uh, torture chapters, um, come from the not too distant future, but uh, 20th century, I'll say that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and there was a, that was a real thing. So this one is, uh, it's pretty brutal for informational purposes only for anybody listening or watching. Well, I'm lo looking forward to it, mate. I mean, it, and it's been great seeing all this, this stuff, mate. Cause I remember, um, I remember when I first, you know, first time I started following you, it's, it's, you know, it's like we, we mentioned a few people on, on the podcast today you know steve especially it's um like i'm in the same position as you i i you know i'm glad i'm not in the military anymore i really really want to be now but i do feel very lucky to be i do feel like there's there's a there's this group same as there was during the Kabul evacuation of just veterans helping veterans you know like you give me a platform today i'm very grateful for that and i try and do that with my podcast veteran state of mind you know you know having people on giving people a platform you know, and just working on projects with, with each other. Like I said, working on this project with Nate was loads of fun. Um, me and Vinny have been kind of knocking. Well, actually, Vince, Vincent and I did a book together. 
um, which I don't I don't have a copy of for some reason. Which but, which one's that called? But, uh, we did a we did a short book together called Sugar Man, which was like a a, a kind of a, again like a revenge based like a short story, you know, set on the border. Um, you know, which is kind of something that we just tried out with self publishing, just kind of tested the waters with it, and but you know, it, it, it's just great fun to to work with other like-minded people that like to write about brutal stories i suppose oh now we're back all right i was just saying that the uh all, is, it dumping all, on, is it dumping on you it probably is i can't see out the window because the things are but it was earlier when i walked in yeah. it was uh it was coming down yeah. um right. but uh yeah all the all the ways to reach you everything you have going on that'll all be in the the show notes for people and i hope everybody reads this book right here your work is incredible and you're such a talent so i'm really excited to see what you work on in the future um just uh just amazing so thank you for for sharing all this and for following that passion because it's uh everybody benefits so thank you so much mate thank you thank you for having me on mate it's an absolute pleasure and it's been nice to catch up yep absolutely take care and hopefully i'll see you soon cheers brother have take a good care. one Danger Close is presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. Becoming a member at Navy Federal Credit Union could help you earn more and save more. Their certificate options earn you more than standard savings accounts with competitive rates. Not all financial institutions offer you as many choices for savings options as Navy Federal does. For example, you can start your savings journey with a low minimum deposit like $50 for an easy start certificate. Add money at any time and watch your savings grow. Thanks to flexible terms, you can use Navy Federal's savings options for all kinds of goals, short or long term. If you're saving for a down payment on a new car, you may need an auto loan at a great rate. Navy Federal is there too. Applying is easy. You can do all of it on their mobile app, online, or by phone. And it's so fast, you can get a decision in seconds. Plus, with their car buying service powered by TrueCar, you can shop, compare, and get upfront pricing on your next new or used car. Find out more at NavyFederal.org. At Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, open to armed forces, the DOD, veterans, and their families. Credit and collateral subject for approval, rates subject to change, and are based on credit worthiness. Message and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information and to apply. Today's episode is also brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee Company. Grab a can of Black Rifle Coffee's ready-to-drink, the perfect balance of quality and convenience. If you want a Spartan-level caffeine kick, try Ready to Drink 300, available in salted caramel, vanilla balm, and more. Made with an electrifying blend of MCT oil and amino acids, Ready to Drink 300 packs a caffeine punch that'll supercharge your day. Ready to drink is perfect if you need your coffee quick and shopping with Black Rifle Coffee helps give back to the veterans and first responders who serve our nation. You can stock up on cans at blackriflecoffee.com or grab an ice cold can at a convenience store near you. You can stock up at blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose and use code dangerclose20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. BlackRifleCoffee.com slash DangerClose for 20% off. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. First off, thank you to Badass Workbench 
Go to badass-workbench. Check out what they have going on. Follow them on the social channels. They made this amazing desk, and this thing is solid. Absolutely love it. And what do I have right here? This is a piece of the mat from UFC on July 2nd of this last year, so 2022, when the Terminal List sponsored the event. So uh, the Terminal List was on the mat. It's covered in blood. You can see right here, this is a piece of it. Uh, Chris Pratt has the part that says the terminal list, uh, framed with all the blood all over that. So it was amazing to get out there with the cast and crew, hang out for a little bit, watch the fights and, uh, have a great time. So thank you, UFC. And, uh, obviously thank you, Amazon, MRC, Chris Pratt, Antoine, and everybody who made this happen, uh, especially Jared Shaw. So Jared is the one who sent this to me. Jared plays Boozer in the show and he's a seal buddy who gave the terminalist the book to chris pratt before it even came out before it was even published and chris optioned it and that's how this came to be so jared shaw amazing now he is writing on this next season he's an executive producer on this next season um so jared thank you my friend for making it all happen very cool all right, what else do we have here? Vertex right here sent this bag. Looking forward to checking this out. If you've been following me for a while, you know I'm a backpack guy. I have quite a few packs and I'm always testing out new packs and uh, this is awesome. So Vertex, thank you guys, appreciate it. And James Yeager, unfortunately James Yeager passed away in 2022. Um, he was a friend, ran a shooting school, although he doesn't like it to be called a shooting school, it's a gunfighting school. And he did the podcast with me, as you can go back and check that out as well. But he has this book that came out, and it's The Four Pillars of Fighting. James Yeager, right there. So Mindset, Tactics, Skill, Gear. And this just came out, so you can find it. Uh, it's for sure on Amazon, but uh, probably other places as well. But definitely check it out. Um, and James, man, miss him. All right, there we go. That right there, what else do we have going on? Black Rifle Coffee Company. Well, you can also join their sticker club, and every month you get stickers. So got some right here. Coffee or die. Yep, coffee or die. Look at that. Death before decaf. Solid. Uh, so you can follow Black Rifle on the social channels and check out the website and obviously drink the amazing coffee. And before I get to this SIG concierge service. Uh, I get a lot of questions about the whiskey glasses on the website. So officialjackcar.com, click on shop in the upper right-hand corner. That's where all the merch is. And there are two types of whiskey glasses right there. So these ones are the ones that should be on there most of the time, although these sell out quickly as well. And then these ones are the limited edition ones. So these are the ones that are made with high West whiskey bottles that are cut off, sanded down, cross tomahawks right there, Park City on the back. So these things solid. These will be the limited edition ones. And then these ones should be up there. Um, hopefully quite a bit. Don't want to run out of these, but uh, well, first batch went pretty quick, but check them out. They're a little bigger. So you can see that these ones are a little bigger right here. Uh, so um, but this one thick anyway, you can use this as a weapon. This thing's pretty serious. So boom, boom, whiskey glasses. They may or may not be on the website when you're listening or watching this. All right. Forged, uh, Mikey Sowers, buddy of mine for went through hell week together 
and uh, this is Forged, his company right here. And this is a shirt they did. Um, if you watch the podcast with Nick Norris, we talked about um, psychedelic therapies for veterans dealing with post-traumatic stress. And this shirt right here uh, supports that, supports vets. So uh, check out Forged. I think it's Forged.com. And check out this shirt and everything else they have going on as well. Murph Challenge coming up soon. They do that also. And... Sig. Ah, I'm going to open this up. Foxtrot 2 Tactical White Light, and I might put it on this pistol. So this right here was built by the concierge service that Sig offers. So that means you can go online, sixhour.com, and you can pick out the, the 320 you want, the barrel, the slide, the trigger, the optic, and uh, yeah, build your own custom P320. So go to sixhour.com, check that out, and build yourself a 320. All right. That is it for today. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My upcoming novel, Only the Dead, hits shelves on May 16th and is available in ebook, audiobook, and hardcover for pre order right now. To find out more about Garrett Jones, you can go to GRJ Books on Instagram. Also, Veteran State of Mind on Instagram. Find out what he has going on there. Be sure and pick up Brothers in Arms. Listen to his podcast and pick up Siege, Ambush, and Legion. I'm looking forward to everything he has going on in the future. You can follow me on the social channels at Jack Carr USA, officialjackcar.com. That is the website. You can click in the upper right-hand corner on shop for the merch. And if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care out there. Stay safe. Be strong. Keep fighting.